you are either going to succeed and crush it and raise $70 million or you're going to fail and the company's going to shut down. Yeah, I, I remember curling up in my, in, in, a, in my apartment in that unit that we were at and, uh, and just bawling. <laughs> Do the non-scalable shit. But that's the stuff that is actually going to take the business off from zero to one. Zero to one is an infinite motion. That's an infinite growth. I just helped raise $70 million from Graham Stephan, Ludwig, Alex Botes, and Nick DiGiovanni. Our company is Carrot. We help creators with their money and finances. Before this, I always wanted to be a creator, but I was scared and felt pressure to get a real job. So instead, I went to Harvard and studied economics. I worked in investment banking at Blackstone, management consulting at McKinsey, and even worked on Instagram Live at Instagram. But it wasn't right. So I quit my job, did a bunch of therapy, and realized the most fulfilling thing for me is taking what I learned in money and finance and using that to help my creator friends so that they can focus more on the creative side of what they're doing. I don't know if this company's gonna work. I'm scared, I don't know what I'm doing half the time, but I'm grateful we get to take a shot at this. And if you wanna follow our story and learn more, find us at Instagram, at TriCarrot. And if you're a creator, ask us questions. I'm here today with a special guest. This is Will Kim. He's my co-founder and co-CEO here at Carrot. And together, we just raised $70 million to help creators with their money and finances. I met him initially in 2016. He had just dropped out of a master's in computer science program at Stanford to instead start and run a multi-million dollar venture capital firm. Before that, he had worked at Goldman Sachs, Kiva, and Palantir. In high school, he was recognized by President Barack Obama for starting and running his own microfinance org. There are students like Will Kim from Fremont, California, who launched a nonprofit that gives loans to students from low-income schools who want to start their own business. Think about that. So even when he was young, this guy's been thinking about how do I get access to capital to those who need it in society but don't currently have it. But the real reason why the day I met him, I knew I wanted to become friends with him was because I asked him, said, hey, you've done a lot of really cool, impressive things. What's the dream? And he told me, Part of him wanted to quit everything, pull a Henry David Thoreau, and run off to the woods and do pottery. He wanted to leave and become a potter. And I love that. The hardest thing in life is learning to ignore what everyone else in society tells you should care about. Money and status and power. To instead lean into what you're really passionate about and what you really want to create and make. To hear this guy who had been and was going to be so conventionally successful tell me that he yearned for something more true. I was going through the exact same thoughts and questions myself. I'm grateful that I've gotten to become friends with him. And it's why six, seven years later, We've started a company together whose sole purpose is to empower creatives. I want to share more about that journey and what we've worked on together. 
To do that, I want you to get to know Will a little bit more the same way I know him. So, Will, how was that? How are you feeling? Um, I'm a little anxious. I'm feeling good. I'm feeling excited. And uh, I'm feeling very warm after that stellar intro. Do you remember the first time we ever met? Yeah, it's over board games. You told me, a guy you barely knew, you want to quit everything, run off to the woods and make pottery. Would you still do that today? That's a good question. At this point, I think that I was at a point in my life then where I was looking for extremes and I liked the extreme of running off into woods and making pottery. I don't know if at this point I want that in life. I want balance. I have a pottery wheel set up at my home. But have you gotten to make any pots since we started Carrot together? Maybe a couple. <laughs> Maybe like literally two or three pots. That's sad. Yeah, quite sad. But you mentioned like, what do you mean by extremes, right? Well, like actually when I think about your story, because I remember you told me one of your very first internships at college was actually at Kiva, which for those of you who don't know, Kiva was one of the first nonprofits to help think about microfinance. Like how do we get money to people who need it? Like say you're a goat farmer in another country, maybe $50 as a loan could change your life. And Kiva found a really good way of helping people like yourselves, like ourselves in America, get that $50 to your goat farmer. You worked there, but if I remember right, you went to Goldman Sachs the summer after. Yeah, so I actually worked at Kiva maybe uh, in high school. And then I went to college and said, F profits. And so I went to a nonprofit. I got disillusioned. And then I decided, well, if nonprofits can't change the world, maybe the for-profit team knows what they're doing. And Goldman Sachs seemed like a pretty good option. So what happened at Kiva? What did you work on? Dude, I mean, I was a high school kid, so I was just fundraising money. I was organizing dodgeball fundraisers, collecting three bucks from my friends, and then amassing that into a $500 loan for some of these entrepreneurs on Kiva. And why did you decide to go to Goldman Sachs the next year? You said it wasn't a good experience. Well, it wasn't Kiva that was a bad experience. It was the nonprofit afterwards that I went to um, that I just didn't enjoy working at because people, I mean, nonprofits, I think the, the purpose of nonprofit should be to run itself out of a job. The mission of a nonprofit should be to make that problem for why that nonprofit exists no longer exist, ideally. And um, most nonprofits don't actually do that, right? Most nonprofits are about doing handouts and just trying to figure out how do we make things remain the status quo and put a Band-Aid on a gaping wound. And it just felt so sad and it made me very jaded and then that's what pushed me into like, hey, maybe for-profits know what they're doing. You said the mission of a nonprofit is to run itself out of existence because presumably if it does such a good job solving the problem, it doesn't need to be there anymore. Yeah, that's the hope. Wait, that's super weird though because like if you're working in a nonprofit, like I feel there's some part of you that's like what I'm doing is important and I want to keep doing it, but yeah. like the reward is I don't get to do this anymore. Right, that's what, I mean... I didn't like nonprofits because precisely that. It felt like either I was doing work that continued to maintain the status quo or slightly improve it marginally, but would never solve it. Or if we could solve the problem, it had been solved. And so there wasn't this kind of element of, hey, we're going to make something dramatically different. Instead, it was, let's make these incremental improvements to ease world suffering, which is still a noble goal. The, the, this this nonprofit you were at, like, what were they even trying to do? It's a grant-making foundation. They basically managed Mark Zuckerberg's money. A lot of these Silicon Valley tech billionaires' money um, into education 
as well as general kind of Bay Area based income inequality and uh, hunger. So you're taking Mark Zuckerberg's money and you were trying to use it to solve hunger. Yeah. Like what were the sorts of products they do? I mean, it would end up going into things like, hey, after school programs for low income children, which was awesome in theory and it sounds yeah, wait, great. This, this all sounds incredible. Like well, why would you come out of the summer and be like, hey, this isn't working? There, there was no metrics. Like we didn't actually improve. Like what was the per capita hunger that we actually reduced? How do we think about changing the world in any capacity? It didn't matter. It just mattered that we had maybe a nice photo op ultimately of how these kids looked after they got fed, which felt exploitative. Kind of reminds me, I saw The Flash recently in theaters. And there's a scene where Wonder Woman puts her lasso of truth on Batman. And Batman, while under the influence of this lasso, of which he has to be completely honest, he says, you know, if I really cared about improving the world, I should stop being Batman and just give all of my fame and fortune to helping eradicate hunger. But for him, emotionally, it felt way more meaningful to put on a bat suit, spend million dollars in bat devices and go out and fight crime. And what I'm hearing, there's almost this sort of like, cool, like I have a billionaire's money and I'm just like spending it on photo ops. Like, oh, hey, I gave this kid like a meal so he's not hungry there. And like, that's meaningful. But what I'm hearing you say is like, well, that's not how you actually address hunger. Well, yeah, and it's not like, hey, if I had a better idea of how to make a better nonprofit, I would be doing that. But you, oh, I don't. You don't. I don't. And instead, I, when I thought about what I want to be spending my life doing, it's making a meaningful change in this world we live in, and it didn't feel like nonprofits had that opportunity. Where, where did that come from? Because I know like in high school, as I mentioned, right, like you did your own microfinance organization that Obama recognized you for. Like, Was this to get into college? For the micro-lending thing? Yeah. Honestly, the microlending thing I found out about while I was trying to get into college. I was doing an SAT test prep thing and I read about microlending. I read about Kiva, first of all, in like a SAT test prep critical reading section. And then I was like, wow, this is incredible. Um, and it's an opportunity to make, make me money, make that person money and make the world a better place. And I thought, how wonderful. How can I get involved? And I went to Kiva and then I realized that at Kiva, I was actually just brokering money. But how do I ultimately do this myself? And so that's when I decided, hey, I'm going to start microlending to other kids in the Bay Area where there's a lot of wealth and inequality. And that was what got me the bug of like, hey, I can make a slight difference in the world if I just try. And um, I think that's what's kind of stuck with me. I love that. I also want to say that's the most Asian American founding yeah. story ever. It's like, oh, you know, I was doing SAT prep and I'm reading this passage and it's talking about this microfinance org. And I'm like, wait, why am I out here taking a goddamn SAT test when like I could be doing what... It sounds like you saw it as this very like elegant system where like it helps people, but it also helps me, which makes it a little more self-sustaining. Yeah, I mean, it just felt like it was making the whole world better. I mean, what's not to love? And what's interesting, I feel like there's this distinct difference the way you talk about the microfinance org you started versus what you're doing with Zuckerberg's money. You talk yeah. about the microfinance org, there's this element you mentioned of self-sustaining, right? Like, hey, I'm giving money to those who need it, but that whole concept is, I'm getting money to those who need it because they're going to repay me and I'm going to make some interest off of that, which helps funds the operations, which helps scales it to other people versus I'm hearing you with Mark Zuckerberg. You're like, well, Mark Zuckerberg's just got lots of money and he's just handling it. And I'm just like processing it and giving it to these other people. There's not that same element of like, it's just, you know, going to keep going. Right. Uh, just as a point of clarification, though, I didn't charge any interest on those loans. <laughs> oh, wait. So in high school, you're making these microfinance <laughs> loans, but you're not charging any interest. Because I thought that everyone would pay back. I was like, and I found out the hard way that it's a lot easier to give away money than to get the money back, which is a good so when, lesson. 
Okay, so like, okay, good to know. Very good. To You're know. writing this microfinance org for high schoolers, mm-hmm. basically. So Will presumably is gathering money from was what is it? Donors essentially, lenders. No, other high school kids. Other <laughs> high school kids. So you're you're going around to like high school kid number one and being like, hey, high school kid number two in like presumably lower income area, sure. right? More underserved like, areas, yeah. More underserved area, like really needs your money for what, like lunch, school supplies? No, I wouldn't make this pitch. All I would say is that you want to do dodgeball. I have a dodgeball tournament and I'm going to give a hundred dollar prize. And if I got 300 people to come to a dodgeball tournament and pay me three bucks each, that's 9,000 bucks. I give away a hundred bucks. I get 800 bucks to. I get it. it. So you're running these like dodgeball tournaments, (laughs) but you're taking the profits and not keeping it to yourself. You're actually just lending it to other high school students in need. Yeah, that's right. But there's no interest. So yeah. Ideally, you're going to these high school students and you're like, hey, like, I have this money for you. Right. Take it, like, do great things with it and just like, pay me back. That's, that's precisely. So do they all pay you back? No. So most of them did not pay back, which was a very disappointing learning for me. But it was the magic of having a couple pay back. That was what really got me starting to think. Of, we had like one kid. He took 500 bucks, made a leather belt business by buying random materials off of Alibaba at the time and then sell, like, making it in his garage and selling it on Etsy. He took $500 and turned that into a $10,000 generating business, which obviously as a high school kid, I was like, that's mind-blowing amounts of money. I got 500 bucks, and then I promptly turned that around and lost it on my next loan. This is not a self-sustaining business. No, and, and, and at the same time, I agree that for me, I love those kind of self-sustaining systems. I mean, at Stanford, I studied symbolic systems, right? This mix of computer science and philosophy. This idea of having something that grows over time and compounds is so powerful and exciting. Um, and I want to spend my time leveraging that by the way for those of you who don't know so yes will went to stanford making asian parents proud everywhere and stanford has like all these super secret special majors what he just talked about symbolic systems if you literally go and like google symbolic systems you find like business insider articles being like the top secret major that like the ceo of yahoo and all these other founder luminaries took and it's just like this weird but cool mix of like philosophy and linguistics, yeah. but also computer programming, which I'm really honestly just jealous about. <laughs> so yeah, like t- tell me more about this like symbolic systems major. Like what types of classes would you take? Like what were the things you felt like you learned from it? Yeah, I mean, I think in the end, symbolic systems was just, I, I, I like to joke that I basically got a minor in computer science and a minor in philosophy and I have a major in nothing. It wasn't like some integrated true system. It was just putting, throwing a bunch of different classes at the wall and saying, hey, you can draw a circle around what you want. And ultimately, that's what symbolic systems taught me. Like, how do I connect these dots? How do I draw the circle around computer science and philosophy? And then I was doing some psychology and say, I have a major that's leaning to something I love. And ultimately, for me, that came down to human motivation and understanding human motivation. And ultimately, money to me is the most liquid, fungible form of human motivation. Um, and then that's where I was like, oh, banking is interesting. And I went to Goldman Sachs and uh, really quickly realized that that was not that interesting. I really like the phrase. That's a quotable quote right there. Money is tangible motivation. Like it's how you can track what gets somebody going and what they give to someone else to motivate them as well. I like the quote. I don't love the concept because I think <laughs> true motivation comes from when you're aligned on mission and purpose. Totally. Totally. I 100% agree. But money is a nice proxy. It's just an easy kind of 
uh, cheat code to be able to track that, but you're right, it's not an accurate. Yeah, in fact, studies have shown when someone is doing something because they really love it and you right. give them money, it actually gets them a little bit hooked on that money train. And in the future, without money, they're less likely to do it in the first place, right. which is sad because there's that little bit of intrinsic motivation that's been sapped away, yep. beguiled by the corrupting power of money. Well, and there's a dip. Like If you don't offer enough money, there's actually less motivation than when it was offered or asked for for free which is quite interesting. It's like not like the first 10 or $20 is not at all interesting and in fact reduces the motivation. <laughs> so you're in symbolic systems. It's all about studying in some ways motivation, which equals money, brings you to Goldman Sachs. You said you didn't have the best time over at Goldman Sachs. What do you mean? Like first, like what did you even work on there? And then, yeah, why did you leave? Yeah, I was at the um, special situations group. And so we were looking... For, at- for those of you who don't know, by the way, the special situations group is like the Goldman Sachs of Goldman Sachs, <laughs> like as someone, okay, so like I made fun of Will going to Stanford. I went to Harvard, right? Right. With all that entails, if you know, you know, I'm not necessarily proud of all of it, but like kids at Harvard were like salivating over themselves to try and get into Goldman Sachs and to try and get into the special situations group. So for context, Will here at Stanford, he's like, Oh, like symbolic systems is about motivation. Motivation is about money. Like I should go learn about money. Like, oh, let's just go to Goldman Sachs. This is like legitimately one of like the top groups that he's at. So now with that context to reviewers, what were you actually doing here at the <laughs> special situations group? Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't know actually that it was that um, exciting until afterwards when people were like, whoa, how'd you get in there? I was like, I just applied. Like that's all that you have to do, right? And when I was there, it was really exciting. I mean, we were able to look at a bunch of different types of businesses to invest Uncle Goldman's money, basically, and try and yield a 15 to 20% IRR on that cash. Um, and what we were looking at were mid-market SaaS businesses. So these were like tech businesses, basically making about $50 well, million. Okay, mid-market SaaS, like what is this? Like I'm a grocery store and like here's the software I used to track my inventory? That's right, like SKU tracking, like hey, unit tracking for grocery store retailers and saying that would be one type of business or hey, I'm going to sell wedding registries for... Uh, random people in America, and I'm going to make $20 million a year doing that. That's middle market. They're not a billion dollar company. They're not a small $10 million company. They're right in the middle. So like $100 million. And so you're trying to figure out which of these companies do you invest in? Yeah. Although in the end, I mean, I wasn't the one making anywhere near those kinds of decisions. I was just modeling out, hey, how do we make money? And what are the different structures that we can put in place to be able to extract maximum value? Well, what do you mean by structures? Like, say you look at this company, yeah. which I alluded to, it makes software for grocery stores to manage their inventory. So when you say you're helping model at the structure, what does that mean? Yeah, so it looks like, hey, if we give them money, let's say I want to give this grocery store $50 million, how much of that should be um, in exchange for equity? Basically, I want a percentage of your business versus how much of that should be debt that you are going to owe me back. Right, because obviously debt has a lower return, but it's more likely you're going to get it back. Right, if I take debt, I have a lien on the company, which basically means that in the worst case scenario, I can just basically sell the entire business for parts, and I get the first dibs on all the cash. So interesting, so like you're coming in here, right? In high school, you've been running like dodgeball tournaments to get yeah. money from kids, to give to other kids without interest, right? You worked at Kiva, right? You even worked at a nonprofit who's trying to use Uncle Zuckerberg's money to help eradicate hunger. Now you're at Goldman Sachs. You go through the experience. You're trying to figure out companies to invest in. You inadvertently end up at one of the most prestigious groups. Then you're like, I don't like this. So you, you come back like, what's the goal? Like, what's the dream at this point? Yeah. I mean, I, to be honest, had no idea. (laughs) It was just, I knew that Goldman wasn't it. And I knew that nonprofits wasn't it. 
And then that's when startups, fintech startups became more interesting. This idea that, hey, you can use the internet to move money more efficiently into the right people's hands at the right time and make some magic happen. And so I started working at some fintech companies. Also, like, just like let it be noted, you're like, I don't know, 18, 19, 20 years old. You're going through these like philosophical waxings on the role of money society. Like, dude, I was just like, oh my God, like, how do I learn to have friends? Like, how do I learn to talk to girls? So like, what is, what is your personal life looking at this point? I feel like you once told me yeah. you used to party a decent amount. Yeah. Uh, so let's, <laughs> let's, uh, let's talk about that. You're <laughs> figuring all of this out and you're what, like you're partying at the same time. Yeah? yeah, man. I mean, I think growing up, I mean, you talk about this a lot, Eric, and this is what resonated quite a bit when we were um, first meeting where it's just like having that tiger mom right, where you have these Asian parents with super intense expectations, um, not a ton of freedom, but a ton of responsibility placed upon you. Um, and so in college, all of a sudden, my mom just completely let go, which was shocking and actually frightening for me, because all of a sudden, my mom wasn't telling me like, hey, like, you need to study for the SATs. All of a sudden, it became like, well, Will, what do you want to do with your life? And I had no f-ing idea. I had no clue what I wanted to do with my life. I just want to make the world a better place. But it felt like there wasn't an easy path to doing that. It felt like, okay, I guess I can work at Google or I can work at these big companies and be a little cog in the machine. And that felt so disappointing. And so partying was nice, dude, to be honest. It just felt like, okay, I have maximum freedom. I have no responsibilities. Time to just like figure out what it's like to live a little. little. And it got addictive, to be honest. I drank a lot, way too much. I had, um, yeah, just too much to drink. Yeah. I think over the past few months, you've been trying to drink less, yeah? I, to be honest, in the past year, I've been cutting down my alcohol intake. I'm not going cold turkey, but it's right. like maybe a drink here or there like once a week. For those of you who don't know, so I am essentially a teetotaler. I think yes. that's how you say the word? Yes. Right, where I drink maybe three glasses an entire year. Yeah, if, maybe. I've, I don't think I've seen you ever drink a drop if, of alcohol. If, if even, yeah. right? And to be clear, this isn't from some like Oh no, I think alcohol is bad. It's more just, so I also grew up with <laughs> tiger parents right. who were like, drugs are bad, alcohol is bad. And I think I just like internalized a really high degree of that anxiety and fear. So even today, like no one's stopping me. Like I could go and get drunk right now, but I don't because I'm just like scared. I'm just like, oh, I don't know who I turn into. And yeah. so one funny thing about our friendship between myself, Will, Will, historically speaking, was always much more of a prolific drinker than I was. And the funny thing is, that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? Because in a way, you get to know people a lot better when you drink with them. In fact, I feel so, Will, you're Korean-American. I feel yeah. like Korean culture, that's like a huge thing, yeah? Yeah, I mean, we, we joked about this, or we talked about this. Yeah. And I was like, I don't know, because my dad told me that if you want to do business with somebody, you got to drink with that person and make sure you get drunk, and then you'll know what that person's like. So when I met you and we started working together, I was like, we should go out for drinks. And I think you told me, like, I'm not really interested in drinking. And later on, maybe a month later, I told you, I was like a little disappointed about that. And I was not sure like how we would work together. I get it, right? It's like, imagine you're growing up in this culture where your dad is literally like, if you don't drink with the guy, do you even really know him? And like, we're starting to work together. Well, (laughs) so like, how did you deal with that? Because obviously I didn't really drink (laughs) and we are working together. And it's been, for for those of you who don't know, Will and I, we met in 2016, 17. This is now 2023. Right. So we've known each other for six, seven years, and we've been working on Carrot for like four years. Yeah. So yeah, how, how did you get over that? 
I drank less. <laughs> and, I, and I recognized maybe the toxicity in that statement of like, huh, huh. why do I have to get someone's face to really understand that? Maybe I can just understand them by being open and transparent and vulnerable. Does, and your, dad, does your dad still drink a lot? Yeah, but he's never like a binge drinker. He just drinks yeah. Social. Uh, always like a couple glasses a night. He just always has to have some wine or soju. Mm. Well, I was going to say, <laughs> putting aside the interesting question of like, hey, is that healthy? I think <laughs> most people do admit that they open up when they're drunk. And right. so I think there is truth to that concept of you really get to know a person when you drink together. And I actually remember we, you and I, we've been in multiple business situations where we'd be chatting. I still remember a few years ago, oh God. we were chatting with this big Twitch agency. They worked with many of the biggest Twitch streamers at the time, many names that our viewers would recognize. And to like seal the deal, right? We ended up like they asked us to join them in like Tawana. Yeah. Did I pronounce that right? Tawana? Tawana. Yeah. Tawana. And like drink. And I remember at the time I was a little bit more socially awkward. These days when I'm in those situations and people ask me to drink, I just tell them like, hey, I don't. And it's been totally fine and nobody gives a shit. Right. But I used to really worry about it. And so they bring in all these drinks and they'd be like, you drink? Like, yeah, yeah. And I just, I nudge the drinks over to you. So yeah. we're, we're over here at this business dinner and Will's just getting twice as faced yeah. as everybody else and by the way they they already are copious drinkers like it's like a four course meal and like every course they bring out there's like two glasses of wine it was a 10 course meal i was okay it's a 10 course <laughs> it's a 10 course it's a 10 course meal yeah and you probably got at the end of the night you're probably what like 10 drinks in easy man like dude, 15? I had, well, 15 because i had yours and i was drinking most of that yeah which those of you watching never drink that much i think that actually oh. Barely puts your health at risk. And what's funny was because at the end of the night, it started to actually get into business talk. And like good things came out of that. Uh, like, fun fact we may or may not have ended up working indirectly with T Pain as a result of this important business negotiation, which is pretty cool. Yep. And we're like talking business details. And so the way Will and I usually operate is Will, I think. In my head, the story is Will is better at negotiation than I am. Mm. So many times I might get to know somebody initially, but when it starts to getting down to, all right, what are the details guiding through which we're going to work together? Oftentimes we'll end up taking that. And the reason why is I think one of the things, you know, this is all getting to like why Will and I work together and we complement each other in many ways, which is good, but also bad because sometimes you argue a lot. But one of the ways that's yeah. good is Will cares less what people think about him. He still cares. You still care. But I think I, for myself, always had a little bit more of this really anxious tendency to be liked by other people. And I think you've always been a little bit more of one of your, at least previously, favorite words. You're a contrarian. Uh, yeah, that's such a obnoxious thing to say, though. I, don't, I try not to say that. Anymore. You used to. I used to say it a lot. Yeah, it was obnoxious. It was obnoxious. I acknowledge this. Yeah, Will used to be that guy who would walk around and be like, no, 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 no. Like, I'm a contrarian, which I feel like is like slightly grown up version of being emo. We're just like, <laughs> oh, I go, I go against the tide. And, I, you know, I haven't heard you say that expression actually for years. Good. Yeah. I've tried to cut it out. Wait, really? Why have you tried to cut it out? Why Dude, the shame? Because it's so unlikable. I mean, like, like, like I like, like to disagree like, with like what cringe. You say. Yeah, it's, it, it's exactly cringe. Dude, um, you used to like get off on that. Yeah, well, I got a lot of feedback and I also recognized and built some self-awareness over the years and realized, wow, this is not really. <laughs> I will say, 
again, there are many parts of Will that I love. Being a contrarian, even though he doesn't use that term, meant that he cared less of what other people thought yeah. of him. Meaning in negotiation, he was willing to be a little stricter, a little harder, sure. which ended up being really funny at this Tijuana dinner because usually Will's negotiating, but he's uh, 15 drinks in. Yeah. And yeah. so I ended up taking over a little bit more because yeah. you know I was completely sober. Uh, I, I was going to say, though, I remember, so when we got into Y Combinator, yeah. which are for those of you who don't know, that this is like the top startup accelerator incubator, yeah. like Airbnb, Airbnb, Dropbox, Stripe, yeah. Instacart are all Y Combinator companies. It was, it was my dream for a very long time to get in there. We had a chance to get in. I remember Will was kind of like, Psh, I don't even want to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, I think what frustrated the hell out of me was it felt like it was just because it was the contrarian thing to do because so many people like me, little tryhards, we wanted to get into Y Combinator that Will was like, oh, I don't, I don't need this. Yeah, I mean, it felt like I don't need it. Like, let's evaluate whether it helps us. But they took 7%, you know, their pound of flesh. Which they they take 7% expensive. equity for those of you who don't which know. Which is a lot of equity. It is a lot. But you think it was worth it. Yeah, I mean, in retrospect, I was 100% wrong to be like, yeah. I don't want to go into YC, and now I recommend every single founder friend to go. But at the time, you were just yeah. like, the, the very contrariness of yourself, this is a case where I was like, oh. Yeah, and this was like, again, four years ago. I think I was pretty arrogant as well. I thought, like, I know how to build a great business. Do you, do you think you know that now? No, but I'm learning, oh. which feels great. Will and I had a discussion a few weeks ago where... So in many ways, what you and I have worked on since Carrot has evolved her force, it's like changed a lot. Because like in the early days, yeah. like when you start a company, it's just you like literally doing everything yourself, trying to figure out if there's even an opportunity. Now now we have right. over like 40, 50 employees. I think a much bigger part of what we do is figuring out how to build systems, right? Yeah. Like better technology, the right people, the right processes, yeah. building sort of this machine. And it's really different. I struggle with it because I enjoy a lot more doing things myself, but Will, I think, has gravitated a little bit more to it. And I remember asking Will, like, you know, I'm trying to figure out what's the part of Carrot I enjoy the most, and it's not so much the teams and processes and people as much. I think, you know, deep down, right, like, what's your reason for doing Carrot? And I think there's a variety of motivations for both of us. Of course. For myself, part of it obviously is the ego. I want to do something on my own. Part of it obviously is the potential financial upside. A very meaningful part of it is wanting to support creators. Because as you know, well, deep down, I always wanted to be one. I always wanted to be creative. I felt as a kid that aspect of myself that wanted to read and write and act was I was repressed. Yeah. I look at YouTubers and Instagram influencers and TikTokers today, and I see people who figure out a way to do that and support themselves as well. And so like for me, doing care is I got to work with them and support them. And now I got to do content. And I love it. And I think there's a part where, yeah, I want my own story to be understood and to feel seen. And I get to do that together mm. through Carrot. I want to put the story of Carrot and ourselves out there. Even this whole podcast in itself was something that I pushed a little on being like, well, I really want to do it. And I remember for you, the motivation was different. I mean, a lot of it was just building a really great business. Yeah. I mean, of course, like I think empowering I mean, in the end, empowering people and making the world a better place is, it's a great feeling. I feel like a superhero, you know, and, and that felt empowering, especially as a kid. I remember, I don't know, seeing like someone homeless on the street and being like, mom, why don't we just help that person? And, you know, and she's like, well, we can't. Like, if we do that once, then how are we going to do it for everyone else? And it just doesn't scale. And it's like, why does that matter? 
And um, what feels nice about our business is that we can build something that actually makes the entire world a better place and could scale and could exist far beyond me or you or be far greater than any one person. And I, I think that power of building a great team feels so exciting. Um, a great team that wins uh, consistently and builds something meaningful for creators or maybe more broadly the world. I like that. So for you, because I've always understood part of your mission, in addition to the same points around ego and financial upside, sure, yeah. a big part of it was also you know, building a great business. And now I'm understanding that a little bit more. Building a great business, it's not necessarily the money for you, although obviously that's a yeah. part of it. It's more like you see a business as this self-sustaining entity that can do good in a world in a way that you like doing microloans of $100 to high school students with no interest and then they default on you like that didn't work. Yeah, not a great business. Right, but like business. even you being at like the Mark Zuckerberg Let's Eradicate Hunger Foundation where it's just like using sure. Mark Zuckerberg's money to buy people food also didn't feel like that. You're sitting at Goldman Sachs just trying to invest money into like yeah. grocery software businesses doesn't feel like that impact there is as present. So I'm hearing for you, this is like a vehicle for you to affect change in a way that sustains itself. Yeah, that's right. I, I, I think I mentioned this to you before, like, the best business is a business that doesn't need me or doesn't need anybody, in fact. A great business can be run by anybody, you know, in the world and still See, see that's, that's wild to me, right? Because you kind of described the mission of a nonprofit is to work itself out of existence. I'm hearing you take that same line of thinking. You're like, as, so we're co-CEO, but I'll just use the term CEO. As CEO of the business, you're saying your job is to work yourself out of needing to be CEO? Am I understanding that right? Yeah, that would be ideal, right? Like, well, and... I think that's the ideal state, mostly because then you can actually think of the future. I mean, Steve Jobs always talked about how he needs to have 20 hours a week minimum just unblocked so he can just have walk and talks and just look at what people are working on and think about what needs to be done in the future. And I think that kind of space and freedom is certainly important in, in our kind of role. Okay, so first of all, do you have this 20 hours a week unblocked? No, right now I am. I mean, I, we talked about this. I have 30 to 40 hours a week in just meetings right now and I'm working to extract myself from those meetings so fun yeah second of all even in the context you describe right you're saying these 20 unblocked hours to think about the future well then isn't the CEO still needed for the business like you're saying this all as in like yeah. oh hey I don't think the CEO is even needed like if you're thinking about the future you are still super needed that's true um, if, if we want to keep growing the business but if I were to exit it would still exist and, and you want the ability that it just keeps running without you right and what's nice is that I, it's just upside. I can help continue to grow it, right? We would be able to actually think about the future and how to continue to expand it. It's only upside. It's not like downside protection. If we were ever to get hit by a bus, the business were to actually still succeed. Yeah, it's actually an interesting test we've heard from mentors and advisors, the bus yeah. test. Like if you and I were hit by a bus right now, heaven forbid, first of all. Yeah. Second, why are we on a bus? Interesting question. I hate buses. I hate moving transportation. I don't think you're on the bus. That's the problem. I think the bus hits you. Cool. This feels like one of those black mirror monkeys, Paul paradox things where <laughs> I now live the rest of my life optimizing around avoiding being hit by a bus. Yeah. And it's like some cruel twist of fate. Like I choke one day from like a toy bus, somebody like slips into my food or something. That'd be a, that's by, a nice twist. Hit by a bus in a metaphorical sense. Regardless, the point is if a butt contributed to our mutual demise, I think Carrot would also be in a lot of trouble right now. I think it would struggle, yeah. But actually better than if it were two years ago. I mean, yeah, if it were four years ago, it was just us. Well, so four years ago, but the company didn't put, exist. I, I remember four, four years ago. So you and I were friends for several years before we even yeah. started Carrot, right? I remember like a lot of what we just went through. This is stuff 
that I got to know in our first couple of years of friendship. Right. It's just like this man, like how his mind thinks, like this self-proclaimed contrarian who doesn't care as much about what people think. Although I've since realized the whole, and I think this is why you moved a bit away from the titling of contrarian. In a way, saying that you don't care is caring. Right. It's just, yeah. I, there are, and there's an element. It's I was not truly contrarian. It was just, I mean, that was also Silicon Valley canon. You know, it's like, if you want to build a great business, you got to be contrarian. That's what mattered to me. I just want to build a great business. You can't follow the herd. If you follow the herd, you're just building mediocre. Which is businesses. funny because now the herd mentality is don't follow the herd and be cool and oh, be a contrarian. Interesting. Maybe I've just run away. I'm still a contrarian. So the, the funny thing is a lot of these concepts and precepts you have from Silicon Valley, I didn't have any of these. Right. Yeah, because you grew up in Fremont. You yeah. grew up surrounded by tech, yeah. surrounded by startups, Stanford, and Asian American people. Yeah. To the point where I remember part of the reason you told me you went to Goldman Sachs was because in your head that was the contrarian thing to do. Right. To go to New York high finance was the very different thing. And then you realized actually you just ended up in the very classic rote what everyone did but just from a different culture. Yeah, that's just an alternate universe on the East Coast. Right, and that's, that's the universe I grew up in. Right. right? I grew up surrounded by, <laughs> there were very few Asian Americans where mm-hmm. I grew up. I didn't know anything about tech or startups. Like I didn't, I mean, even like, I'm not technical. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. And Will is not like the most technical person in the world, but is much more technical than I am. I remember one of our very first projects. So we worked on a lot of things before doing care. And I remember one of them was we were trying, we were like, this is during the direct-to-consumer era where like everyone was just spinning up these nice little sans serif landing pages and selling nutritional supplements and you'd buy them online as a better experience than going to the store. We tried to do this with natural sleeping supplements like valerian root. And I remember even like making the website, you seemed to think this was something I could do. Yeah, no, I was just like, hey, you just work on this web page. It's pretty simple. I mean, it was Squarespace. This was not even real. No, this is Webflow. Oh, it was Webflow? It was either Squarespace or Webflow. It was Webflow. Either way, it just seemed pretty straightforward. But uh, I thought it was a WYSIWYG. You know, what you see is what you get. And it was, yeah, Which, that's but, when but, I first by learned. One, one of my favorite acronyms, what you see is what you get, WYSIWYG. What, yeah. a great, what a great acronym. But yeah, you are saying, that's when you first learned. Yeah, that's when I first learned that, man, like uh, you and I are just different people with different kind of understandings. And you know, like, I mean, you, you come as a debater. And I remember being really, really impressed with how much you talked about nothing. <laughs> I remember just telling that to you. I was like, dude, you say so much so fluently about nothing in particular and it was both something that i felt annoyed by at the time and then admired and then over time i've come to realize no i mean it's a level part of you that i'm i i don't know it's kind of nice when you scat a little bit to like look for the right that's like the most backhanded compliment ever yeah sorry so will's conclusion was i asked him to help me code this really simple web page and that's when i realized Will, Will's like, that's when I realized Eric had other talents, like being full of shit. Yeah, that's honestly, uh, yeah, that's true. It's true. Well, for, for Connex, this was like a pretty simple web page. It wasn't even like we had to code it from scratch. It was no. like a template. We just had like modified pieces of code. Yeah. And Will's like, hey, just like do this. And I was like, dude, I don't think you understand. Yeah. He's like, no, 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 just do it. And so he gave it to me. And an hour later, I was just sitting there and I was like, help. <laughs> No, but what you did do literally was get all the Valerian root kind of bottles that we just bought off of Amazon, and then you got the labels off. You printed out the labels uh, at Kinko's, uh, the new labels that I had designed, and then it was like, great, we put it together. And I think you were the one who also put up the ads and said, hey, how do we? Yes, get because I were, 
worked at Facebook and we had free Facebook yeah, credits, yeah. Which, was, which was a meaningful reason for those of you who don't know, this is a meaningful reason why Will partnered with me in the first place. <laughs> it was not my sparkling personality. Will was like, well, we like need to run ads for this business. And Eric has access to free ad credit. Facebook has this philosophy called dog fooding. It's actually a philosophy in tech in general where you have to try out your own products. And so that Facebook would literally give free ad money to its employees to run ads and test out its products. Which, by the way, we dog food as well. We use carrot cards, for those of you who are not sure what dog fooding means. And yeah, Will's like, Eric has access to free ad money. Like, cool, let's do this together. Yeah. But I, I appreciate the context. Well, I think one thing that's been really interesting with Will and myself is, you know, when, when we started the company, you and I thought we actually had a lot in common. Which, like, yeah, we, we obviously do, yeah. right? As Asian Americans who had been through a lot of the classic prestige stopping points and realizing actually we want to do different things. The day you told me, right, one of our very first conversations, you want to run off to the woods and make pottery instead, yeah. it really tapped into this deep part of me because I've been years, I'm older than Will. For those of you who don't know, Will, you're what, 28? Yeah, 28. 28. I'm 31, guys. I turned 32 in two weeks. Sobering. <laughs> And by the way, I am sad and annoyed about this. You know, this guy got Forbes 30 under 30, and I did not because I was five months too old. Oh, and let it also be noted, Will actually does not give a shit about Forbes 30 under 30. Again, differences in personality. I think there's still that little bit of contrary nature in you. For Will, the fact you're Forbes 30 under 30 is a minus. Yeah, well, I mean, the only Forbes list that matters is the billionaire index. Yeah, see, that's that's I, the index that come matters. Come on, man. <laughs> well, sadly or unsadly, I do care, and I was yeah. very salty about that. Anyways, I'm older than Will, so by the time I had met Will, you know, he was running his own venture fund, and he was telling me he wants to run off to the woods and just make pots. Um, which side note, you can look up Will's pottery account. Can we share? Are you are you comfortable oh, yeah, sharing? Sure. Yeah, it's a public so it's at so Will's regular account, which like if you're watching this, you're gonna be one of the few to find this. You all see my mother face ever we don't see him because he's more secretive right this whole concept of the ceo works himself out of a job his instagram is at willa kin yeah so w-i-l-l-i-k-i-n yeah which by the way will's name is will kim so it's not even his name it's willa kin you can see some of his hot pot pics there well it's kiln willa kiln well i was gonna say so he has a second account so willa kin is, is his main account he has willa kiln W-I-L-I-K-I-L-N, where you can see his real, real hot pics. It's like those OnlyFans creators where they main account, they show like a little, but you go wow. to their second account, that's where like the real pics are. That's, that's Will and his pottery pics. Damn, I've never compared my pottery pics to... Uh... You literally <laughs> used to call them hot pot pics. That's true, but I didn't think about it. I, I was like, oh, it's cute. They're like hot pots, but not... I mean, okay. Will also was a big fan of pot of all kind, if you catch my drift. Not just those types of pots. Sure, yeah. I mean, I'm a California boy. Do you, California still, boy. Do you still partake? Mm, every once in a while to relax, because <laughs> I've been grinding my teeth a, a ton. Oh, I grind my teeth. We both need night guards. Dude, I was, well, I now have a night guard. I've been oh. eating my night guard. I almost swallowed it, and I woke up, and I had to like gag it out. It was pretty gross. So the reason why we got into this topic, by the way, is because I was saying why when I met Will, the fact that he wanted to go out and be a potter in the woods, why I loved it so much. I'm older than Will. I spent years working in corporate, right? I graduated Harvard. I worked in investment banking at Blackstone, 
worked in management consulting at McKinsey, mm. worked as a product manager on Instagram, building products for creators, yeah. which I loved, and it's directly relevant to what we're doing today. And that's when I met you when I was starting off at Instagram. But I had this sense it wasn't necessarily what I wanted to keep doing. I felt like a cog in the machine, right? I didn't want, you know, going back to the topic of mortality, I don't want my gravestone to read middle manager bitch to Mark Zuckerberg. Mm. And so I was sort of grappling with all these expectations of the things that I thought I wanted to do and what I actually wanted to do. And it was so refreshing to hear this guy who had like all the classic markings of prestige to be like, no, I just want to quit it all and do pot instead in both senses of the word. And I was like, okay, I want to get dinner with this guy. And Will, from what I remember, you were down because I worked at Facebook. In the same way we had free ad credit, which is why you partnered with me on the Valerian Root business, we also had free food and you'd come in and load up on food. Well, I do not appreciate This is making me seem so exploitative, but it is No, no, true. no. It or or we can say a savvy <laughs> businessman, yeah? Yeah, I mean, I mean, at the time when I was running that fund, it, I was taking down... Very 50K. low salt, very low so, salt. Yeah. In comparison, salad. for those of you listening, 50K is actually a lot in America. Yeah, But yeah. relative to what Will could have been making as a Goldman Sachs. Well, I mean, honestly, the poverty line in the Bay Area as well being at yeah. like 100K Because now. the standard of living is so incredibly high in the right. Bay Area. It's it was just... I, I remember you used to fight with your co-founder over toilet paper. Yeah, yeah. At the fund, we would fight over toilet paper. Or I would, it would be very like seething resentment about like, hey, did you take my toilet paper? And be, yeah. Like, and so that's don't. why you come and mooch off of me my free food at Facebook. Right. Yeah. I mean, that was a nice pressure valve that would, you know, I would, I would box things up and then to go a whole week's yeah, worth I of remember. food. It was pretty nice. Mark Zuckerberg's contribution to carrot was free food, yeah, I guess. My that belly. was his seed funding. Feeding our bellies. Feeding our bellies. And yeah. You also were eating well. Oh God. Like, I just eat Chipotle every day now. Yeah. Kind of, kind of miss the Facebook <laughs> food. But, um, and I, I remember it was in the course of those early dinners where we talked about a lot of these sorts of questions. I remember you and I used to argue a lot about the concepts of morality, right? Oh, yeah. Is there is there a fundamental good with a capital G? And I remember your perspective, which I've actually generally come around to, was morality doesn't really exist yeah. in an absolute sense. It's more just what society lands on as being moral and not moral. Mm-hmm. Because like, why is killing bad? Well, it's hard to say killing is inherently bad because on what basis is that inherentness drawn from? Your POV was always, well, killing is bad because it slows down society. And so as a society, we kind of just decided to be like, this is bad, I don't do it. Yeah. I think I've come around more to that in recent times. I think you kind of have to absorb more tenets of that way of thinking if you ever want to leave and do a startup. That's my belief. And I think I think the bit of that you have to absorb is a little bit of that fuck you energy where you're kind of like, God, like this world, I'm going to quote Steve Jobs. By the way, I used to quote Ashton Kutcher on this and then Will corrected me. Ashton Kutcher did not say this. Ashton Kutcher played Steve Jobs who said this. I'm very embarrassed. But right, this world was built by people no smarter than you or I. And that's actually a very empowering statement because it's just like, hey, like all the great things that exist in the world today, like you potentially could do them too. They're not necessarily so much smarter. They might have just been luckier or they might have just had the risk tolerance to go out and take advantage of that right. luck. You have to absorb a little bit of that you energy where like maybe like I could do this too. Mm-hmm. And I think in some ways your contrarian nature served you well in that because you are always a little bit more like it doesn't matter. There's no absolute morality. There's no absolute way to live life. There's always a little bit more of that in you around let me just figure it out, which I think manifested as here's why I'm going to go do pots. I think for me growing up is very different. I used to believe there was a fundamental way to live life, right? The same way I got into Harvard because I was really good at 
Let me get perfect SAT scores. Let me get A pluses on all my courses. Let me check off all the extracurricular awards and club presidencies too, right? and class president. Let and it be noted. Holy Let crap. it be noted. Yeah. Yeah. To be clear, it's probably really try hard and not good use of my time. But hey, at least you know I did it. I might as well be proud of it. And but you know I realized life quickly falls apart because there's no more path you can follow that way. Right. But I've been trying, right? I was like, oh, you know, I graduated Harvard. I worked in banking, consulting, and tech, and I interned in VC. I was looking at business school. And I was just like, this very slow, gradual absorption of this tenant from you, which is like, no, there's like no right way to live life. You can do whatever you want. You can run off to the woods and do pot. Like maybe you totally could actually just do it. Yeah. And I think over the years, that, that mentality is something I've really subscribed a lot more to. The funny thing is, in some ways now, in some ways, I've leaned into that harder than Will. Yeah. In some ways, I haven't. Yeah. Um, I still care more what other people think about me and about Carrot. And sometimes that's good because I tend historically to be the first one to push, let's go talk to outside advisors and investors. Like, oh, you know, like this guy co-founded a big fintech company. Let's ask him what he thinks. And in the early days, Will was a little more averse to it. Mm-hmm. Um, these days, that's not necessarily true. Will asks just as much as I do, if not more. Um, yeah, that's something I learned from you because I cared yeah. a lot about reasoning through first, first principles. principles. Everything I learned that phrase from you. This is another Stanford phrase. First principles or the yeah. Bay Area. Yeah, you want you want to describe what does thinking from first principles mean? I mean, just thinking about the the rules of a system and then making sure that we think about a problem from its actual system as opposed to just reasoning by analogy. The opposite, which is asking other people what they did and then basically copying. Yeah, so I historically grew up a lot more reasoning from analogy, which is looking at other examples of how people have did it, done this, looking at previous sources of wisdom experience. And Will, I was just like, no, 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 it's got to be first principles. Pretend nothing else exists if you were just to make this from scratch. So this concept of first principles became better known because Elon Musk is a big first principles thinker. And when he started SpaceX, he basically said, I'm going to talk to everyone on how to build a rocket. And they're all telling me it can't be done the way that I want it to be done. So yeah. It, I'm going to reconstruct Iraq from scratch using first principles, using the laws of physics as I know. And it's like kind of worked. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think it's pretty it's good. Work, it's, wor- it's working, right? Like, I guess first principles is like, it's like the opposite of abstraction to some degree. Abstraction is like, hey, like, how does the TV work? Dude, I don't know. But like, I put the remote here and I press the button and it works and that's great. All right. right. First principles would be like, no, no, no. Let's like, let's rethink literally the purpose of a TV and what are the ways we can accomplish that? And in yeah. some ways, it's actually very good for product thinking because consider, right. for example, the old school cathode ray TVs, like the really big bulky ones. Yeah. Compare that to flat screens today, plasma or LCD, liquid crystal displays. The technology is fundamentally different. If you wanted to jump over from this big bulky cathode ray TVs to these thin plasma ones, you would have to engage in first principles thinking. You'd have to rethink through what is the concept of a TV. You don't iterate your way there. From the old model of the TV, you have to start from scratch. Yeah. And so Will's always been really, really big into first principles thinking. And so, yeah, I think for a long time, we saw that a little. Again, Will had a little bit more of that f*** you energy. I'm just going to figure it out. But over time, there's been a bit more now where, in some ways, I lean even harder to that than Will. Where I think, especially in the early days of the business, when we're just trying to figure out what to do, mm-hmm. I think Will would be a little bit more like, okay, but like, how does this scale to become a business according to like the precepts of how I understand businesses work from like Reed Hastings, the founder and CEO of Netflix, right? Like here's a project we want to do. How can I see this growing and scaling according to received business wisdom? And I always was a little bit more like who the f- cares? Yeah. <laughs> like just do it. Yeah. See if it works. I remember I literally walked you through this analogy. I don't know if you remember the analogy. It was, we're just fumbling around in the dark. Oh yeah. 
right? Oh, see, we'll, we'll just remember. Oh, you see this a lot, Eric. Okay. okay <laughs> I mean, maybe, we've had many moments when we are truly fumbling in the dark. Okay, maybe I say it a lot, but it's like you're fumbling around in the dark, right? And you just have a flashlight. And the key thing you got to do is you can't look around for received wisdom and figure out the broader plan. You literally just have to take a few steps forward. And by taking a few steps forward, your flashlight illuminates just a little bit more off of which you can figure out how to take a few more steps forward. The funny thing is now, I think this is fantastic in the early days of the company, we now have a little bit more sunk cost. Yeah. Like this is why startups exist as a concept because eventually companies get so big, they can't yeah. do the fumbling around in the dark flashlight looking for things anymore. They have all the sunk costs around people and processes. You have to be more careful. We're beginning to hit a little bit of that. A little bit. Where I can't just fumble around with you in the dark and just say, let's go do whatever there's a little bit more like oh we have to like steer the ship now and the ship takes a little bit of a while to turn when we change the direction yeah that's right that's yeah right. but yeah I, I remember early days though that you energy was a big reason why i loved becoming friends with you and mm. you know i think deep down i always in the back of my head i was like oh there's probably something we could do together yeah yeah no likewise man i was more like eric's clearly very smart and great at like, bull great at bullshitting apparently great at bull but also super open so that when I when there isn't bullshit, then it's like, wow, I actually really like this guy. Yeah, thanks. And I felt super connected. And it, I mean, that's, I think, a huge spike, superpower of yours, right? It's like getting connected to someone like, like that. And, mm. you know, I definitely felt that um, connection very early on, even in our first thanks. conversation. So appreciate that. Yeah, I think that's something I've always been, yeah. I've always found easier. I think the, the descriptor I used to describe myself there is earnest. Mm, I find yeah. it relatively easy to be open and earnest. Like, guys, those of you who are watching, like, I think if you saw the intro that I filmed with Will earlier that hopefully played at the beginning of this video, I think I ended it by saying, depending on which version you saw, like, yeah, we're trying really hard in Carrot. Like, guys, we just raised $70 million. P.S., that puts our total funding over $100 million. We've raised before. Like, we've raised over $100 million. It's like, this is a thing. It's a it's yeah. a actual thing. We've been doing this now for four years. This is the longest I've done anything at. Yeah. And holy God, I don't know if this is gonna work, man. Dude, I'm with you, man. I think I mean it's I remember when we were raising the Series A, it was a little bit smoother. I mean the markets were strong. Series B when we were raising it's it was harder. Really it was much harder. Yeah. Yeah. So for those of you who don't know, as a venture backed business, like why do you even need venture financing? Like, why can't you support yourself from your own revenues? It's a different type of business. It's one where you think there's a real shot. You literally become a billion dollar company, like the next Facebook. And the path, the only path to getting there requires you for a while to focus on building traction, even if you're not necessarily profitable. Facebook being a great example, right? Early days, they were focusing on getting as many users as possible, which I think was the right choice, as opposed to focusing on monetizing really early with ads. And as a financial technology company, it's really similar. Most financial technology companies, we prioritize getting users first. Mm -hmm. And then we monetize, not with ads, but by selling you other products that our company offers. That's why when you look at like Venmo, right? Venmo started with peer-to-peer -peer payments. Now they've launched a credit card. Like Robinhood started with investments. Now they've launched a debit card and a bank account-like product, right? If you're familiar with SoFi, SoFi years ago started as if you're an MBA student, you can refinance your student loans. And now they have like 15 different products they offer. Chase has the Chase Sapphire Reserve card. And a reporter once asked Jamie Dimon, the head of Chase at the time, wow, this card you've launched, it's killing it. How much money has it made? And he said, it's made negative $200 million. 
They said, holy gosh, well, that doesn't seem great. Like, how much money do you wish it had made? And he said, negative $400 million because all the expenses on it were incurred in the first year, but there's a high chance if you had a Chase Sapphire Reserve card, you switch over to the bank account and Chase would make money on you in the long term. So our vision, we're trying to build almost like a bank for creators, solving problems across mortgages, credit cards, taxes. You got to start with one product, which we start with a business credit card. And the idea is we bring them on to that, even if that's not profitable, mm-hmm. we build an initial wedge through which we can sell them other products down the road. And because of that, we had to raise venture funding. And when you raise venture funding, you have to go through multiple stages where the idea is, hey, we have a small chance of being a billion dollar company. And every time we raise a round of funding, we're trying to say, here's the questions that we feel confident in answering. And here's the questions we still need to answer to get on the path of being a billion dollar company. And for this round, give us the money so we can answer this question. And for us with Carrot, I mean, there's four or five questions, right? It's number one, our creators are big market. Number two, are they businesses? Number three, what's the first product we can sell to them? Number four, can we cross sell them other products? And number five, let's scale out of profitability. When we raised our seed, we were just trying to demonstrate to people we think creators are a big market. When we raised our series A, we were trying to demonstrate we think we found the business credit card as the right wedge. And when we did our B, which is that 70 million round you're not hearing about, it was we think the card is the right wedge, we need to cross sell them to other products. And Will's point is the A was actually really easy. <laughs> the yeah. B was harder. I mean, the A was easy because also markets were easier, right? Like I think the money was cheaper, basically. So, but the B was, I mean, definitely a challenging spot for us. And I just remember at the time, like, at a certain point, I just wasn't sure personally that we were going to get a term sheet. I just wasn't sure if we yeah, were going to make it out. I was scared. Yeah, I, did, I remember curling up in my in, in, a, in a, my apartment in that unit that we were at, and, uh, and just bawling. <laughs> oh <laughs> yeah, this is just going to like, like we're done. And that was a tough, tough place. To Will's point, like part of what determines whether you raise money is just whether people want to give it to you. And when we did the A, it was so easy. Like in a week, we had multiple term sheets. When we did the B, it was longer. Yeah. And we did get multiple offers, but that journey, it's so, you are either going to succeed and crush it and raise $70 million, or you're going to fail and the company's going to shut down. It's just a very binarized outcome, right? And it all seems to hinge on likability. And that, that felt like so... Yeah, the story, the vision. Right. It, it was feels just arbitrary. so disempowering in some ways. Um, Ugh. Yeah. For... Uh, <laughs> You mentioned you ended up bawling in a corner. Yeah. Have I showed you what my room looked like while we were doing the B? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I have a photo of you with like <laughs> literally putting a trash bag on your head just for fun because we were surrounded by all your. Like, I don't. I'll, I'll I don't up. remember this for context. I do not I'll, remember I'll trash bag wearing Eric. That must have been a desperate time. Yeah, it was a pretty. Tough but uh, <laughs> there's there's a photo, and you know what, editors. I'll send it to you. Prompt me for this. We'll throw it up on the screen. Oh, God. Every day I'd wake up and we'd just take these fundraising calls together and I wouldn't have time to like go out and like do trash or like yeah. clean up. And so I would just order these this infinite line of Qdoba bowls. For those of you who know, Qdoba's like knockoff Chipotle, but I kind of liked it at the time. And they'd be delivered to my door and I'd eat, I'd eat them in between calls and I'd toss them in a corner because you actually, we, there actually was not time. When you're fundraising, you sequence everything to happen all at the same time. All your conversations happen because you want to compress it. You want to get back to building the business. So I literally, I have this like giant mountain of just these like yeah. dirty old bowls. Yeah, it was scary. It was hard. 
Yeah, it was really scary. Because again, we, in some ways, we like to talk about how we run the business or it's like, yeah. it's our thing. It's, it's not. We have shareholders, we have stakeholders. Oh, we have responsibilities. Right, to a broader team and now a team of 45 or 50 people. And so yeah. all of a sudden, and we don't have the control over the profitability of the business. Yeah, because we, we, we weren't profitable and we're still not profitable. Right. Which again, it sounds crazy, but as a yeah. venture-backed business, obviously the goal is you're profitable eventually, right? Right. But you have to paint the story of how you get there. And in our story and path, we said, look, we're going to focus on growth more than profitability. Right, because ultimately the prize here being if we can be, truly become the one-stop shop for all creator businesses, oh, yeah. I mean, that is a mass. Oh, yeah. Like our, our thinking is like if you make money through content, which we think everyone's right. going to do eventually, every single dollar of that goes through us. Like that is a potential billion-dollar outcome. But getting Easy. there is hard and scary. And we're like, well, we're not profitable and markets aren't as hot. We're sitting here, this very binary, binarized outcome, as yeah. you said. Like, we actually, as we'll allude to, it's either you win or you don't. We actually end up getting multiple offers, like, and we raised $70 million. But the point is, it's like Schrodinger's cat. When you're in it, you don't know. Like, you could end up with nothing and having to shut down and go to your friends, your employees, your investors, the creators we work with and right. saying we weren't able to figure it out. And I think, I think it's balancing that existential fear that as a founder, we had to get better at. So that's why I say we just raised $70 million. We've raised over $100 million to date. We have a real shot at this. It's our game to lose. Yeah. You may or may not know, like our clients and investors literally include the biggest creators in the world. And none of that means necessarily we're going to succeed. Yeah, and success is not guaranteed. No. But There's still a high chance, you know, we're going to raise the Series C and we're going to go through that process again and we're going to have that same existential fear like, oh my f***ing God, I hope we make it. Yeah. But by the way, I'm a big believer. If you ask any startup founder how they think it's going to go and they tell you, oh, it's definitely going to work, they're... <laughs> either delusional or they are lying to you. Yeah. Yeah. Because the truth is, we don't know. That's why it's a startup, right? If you're working on something where it's obviously so apparently clear it's going to work, it's probably been done before and there's not much opportunity for you. Or it's just a tiny opportunity. Or it's a tiny opportunity. There, there's yeah. a saying, Will and I always believe, and I think it originally came from Justin Kahn, but it's like, look, when you do a startup, half the people out there are going to think you're goddamn brilliant. In fact, many creators, when we tell them what we're doing, they're like, this makes sense. I'm a business. Why aren't I taken seriously? You can help me. But half the world out there will think you're stupid. And trust me, there's a lot of people who think what we're doing is very niche or very dumb. And then you ask yourself, why do people think we're dumb? Because it has to be something I believe that they're wrong. And there's generally two ways people think you're dumb. One is because they're like, there's no opportunity there, which for us is like creators just aren't going to be a real thing, mm -hmm. right? And that's not just yep. creators. That could be AR, VR, could be the metaverse, could be crypto, could be cannabis, could be self-driving cars, could be AI, right? Right? Things were like, oh, there's a question mark. How big will this thing be? The second way people think you're dumb is they agree there's a market there, right? If you and I were like, we're going to sell tables. It's like, yeah, yeah no, no, f it. I believe there's a market for tables. People need tables. Then they're going to be like, but why can you sell tables better? Like, why are tables going to be better? How are you going to sell it? And I think Will and I, when we started Carrot, we put a lot of, our focus on let's just see if this market is even a thing. Right. We consider ourselves smart generalists. It's like, I don't know if I can make better tables than the next table maker, right. but I'm willing to take that bet that this brand new creator economy is going to be a thing. Right. And now, four years later, I think we're right, but now the execution matters a lot more. We also have to be good table makers. Yeah. And so I think there's an existential fear of, cool, like, we think this is a thing. Can we execute well enough to succeed? 
Yeah, honestly, it's just, I mean, it just kind of continues to swirl around this uh, uncertainty. Do we know what's good? Do we know what's yeah. not good? Do we know what's working, what's not working? And it comes back to the, the proverb that I love that Eric does not love. Oh, I've heard this proverb many times, Bill. You want to, I guess. Yeah, of the know, man. Viewers, you get to hear this proverb. The old man and the horse where there's an old man. He has a horse and this horse runs away and everyone in the village is like, oh, that's terrible. It's such bad luck. And he's like, we'll see. The horse comes back and brings back three wild horses. And then everyone's like, wow, what a great horse. You got three extra horses. Such good luck. He's like, we'll see. And then his son rides one of the wild horses that came back, falls off, breaks his back and can't walk. And everyone in the village is like, wow, what a terrible horse who did all this shit. Such bad luck. And he's like, we'll see. Turns out the Chinese army is going to conscript all able-bodied men in that village, but his son, because his son is paralyzed. And so everyone's like, wow, what great luck that your horse ran away, came back with three horses, broke his son's back, and now he's not drafted. And he's like, we'll see. And the moral of the story, ultimately coming back for me, uh, in my head, this moral just comes back to like, I don't know what's good or bad per se. All I know is that in the moment, something has happened and I got to make do. And it comes back to the startup as well. Every day is just ups and downs. And I don't know, maybe a bad thing turns out to be a great thing. For instance, um, frankly, around the series A maybe, we had been looking at our books and then it was like, wait, we're actually growing so fast that all of our money is being spent on these cards and we have a lot less runway than we thought what we did. will means is when a creator spends with a carrot business credit card we're not paid back for like a couple months right, right. because like say you know ludwig goes and spends 50 dollars yep. on like doordash that's using carrot money ludwig pays us back a month or two later now we were growing so fast and so many creators were spending so much on our cards all the money we'd raise was literally just going to covering that time period where they were spent and we'd wait for them to be paid back. So like, it's a good problem to have, but all your capital raise is being tied up in working capital. Right, all the money they were ready to raise was starting to go towards just the card balances. And then over time it was like, well, we need to raise a lot sooner. Yeah. And that felt very bad because it we felt, did not feel ready It, it at felt all. really scary because we felt rushed into it. Yep. But I already know where you're going. Well, the markets turned out to be even worse later yeah. on. It was, it was so good that we was, raised it. It was that the right decision moment. because a huge, as you're watching this in 2023, a huge recession ended up hitting yeah. after we closed our raise. So in a way, if we had waited longer to do our raise, it would have been even, even harder. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. So, I mean, honestly, who knows? Was that good? Was that bad? Unclear. Yeah, this is Will's favorite story. Yeah, it's, it's basically it's, like, you don't know what's going to happen with the horse. You don't know what's going to happen with life. Yeah. I think um, <laughs> I don't love this story as much. I know. Yeah. Um, I think it's Will's version. If we're fumbling around in the dark, you just have to take a few steps forward. Uh, and I, I think it's actually because Will, in some ways, is a little bit more of an even-keeled nature, where when bad things happen, Will's always been a little bit better at being like, well, you don't know if this is going to be really bad. It could turn out great. And I'm a little bit more, uh, let's say, uh, passionate, let's say. So when bad things happen, I'm like, I feel bad. And like, why don't you feel bad? Like, feel bad with me. Like, you don't feel bad. This makes me feel weird. This makes me feel like I'm lame and I'm the one who feels bad. Which, to be clear, I think it's fantastic Will has this little bit more of a modulating effect. Um, and to be clear, this, this changes. Sometimes Will's the one who feels right. bad and I feel fine. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it just varies. But there, there are times when bad things happen. I'm like, oh my God. And Will's like, it's fine. Yeah. But yes, there are times, I'm trying to think of an example where you were freaking out. I was like, ah, this is pretty chill. Maybe one of our competitors, honestly. Oh, uh, Will's always been a little bit more worried about our competitors yeah. than I have. So well, actually, not always, but sometimes yeah. I will get very paranoid. Um, and it depends on maybe the team and it depends on their execution ability. Yes. Are they crushing it? Do I feel like they're crushing it? And then at different times, you and I have swapped positions on this front as well. That's true, actually. You know, so here's the differentiating factor. 
I tend to care a lot more about what creators think because right. I spend so much more time with creators. Will tends to care more about our execution abilities as a company. Yep. And so Will gets freaked out when he sees things that seem to indicate we're not executing well, yep. which could be a competitor seems to be executing better, or it could be we're just missing our own milestones and metrics. For me, I tend to focus more on how are creators receiving us and seeing us, where I care less if a competitor is executing really well if I'm like talking to creators and they're just not still caring or trusting that other company as much. I'm like, whatever. On the contrary, though, when I feel like creators are upset with us, Right. Which like we're an early stage startup. We make mistakes. We yeah. screw things up, honestly. And it sucks, but we do. And we own it. We go to creators and say, look, we, we screwed this up. And that terrifies me to think that these creators who many of whom I know personally we've done a bad job with, that's something that I will be extremely shaken up over and will actually less so if it's in the context of, look, I think the business is doing the right things and this was right. sucky, but we'll fix in the future and it happened. Yeah. He'll be a little less affected or else I'll be more like, oh my God, like we did a bad yeah. job and we pissed off this creator. So we, we care about different things a bit. Yeah, and I remember in the early days, that was definitely a big tension point for us between like, say product thinking versus like creator thinking, which to be clear, they need to be integrated. And over yeah. time, I've definitely more and more appreciated how we've been able to balance the two and understand each other's viewpoints at times around like, oh, well, it's good for the business or it's good for the system or it's good for the user. Um, yeah. There's a way to balance that and pull it together. Yeah, it's a question of scalability. In the beginning, if you do yeah. everything catered for the user to make sure the user is happy, you're probably not building scalable things. Yeah. yeah, which is also not a bad thing. I mean, Paul Graham says like, build, do the non-scalable shit. Now, that's the stuff that is actually going to take the business off from zero to one. Zero to one is an infinite motion. That's an infinite growth, and so you have to work on non-scalable shit. Yeah, Paul Scaling Graham, for those you know, later. is a guy who started Y Combinator, extremely startup regarded. Yeah, startup Jesus is actually a pretty good way. But I think on the whole, you and I have found over time, our personalities actually are very different. Yeah. And <laughs> held together by common respect and common language. So both yeah. of us do a f ton of therapy. <laughs> yeah. I got Will to do therapy. I'm very yeah. proud. I'm very proud of Eric's that. Eric's my therapy daddy. You're like, you're the one who oh, got me man. into therapy. Can we not? I don't know if we want to call it therapy daddy. That, that requires <laughs> some therapy. But uh, Will and I each see our own therapists every week. Yes. We also see a co-founder coach, which really is just a couples therapist. Yeah, he's a marriage counselor. Yeah, he's basically. great. He's great. I love him. If you're watching this, we think you're great. Yeah. Basically every week as well. And then you and I also see executive business coaches. I've slowed down on mine, but yes, oh, yeah? I have historically. We should be clear, for those of you listening, we did not like start with all of this like infrastructure. It was, in fact, I actually felt very guilty and a little narcissistic about bringing in a business coach. I was like, well, I'm already spending money on like therapists. Like, do I really need a business coach to function as well? And then you realize like, oh my God, I'm so stressed doing this startup. And it is so dependent on how I feel and process things that anything that can actually make me process a little bit better will benefit the company, will benefit a lot of people and it is worth it. Yeah. But in the early days, you know, we just started initially just doing regular old therapy. In great. fact... Before I did Carrot with Will, when I quit Instagram, I did outpatient therapy at El Camino Hospital for like, I'm, you remember this, right. for like a whole month, I went down to this hospital and I spent like 10 hours a day with these people doing therapy. And I walked in initially being like, well, I super don't belong here. <laughs> and after we got like, oh no, because I could see these people and I don't know anything about them. I don't know their names. I don't know their, what they do for a living, their job. In some ways, that's actually very freeing because usually right. anywhere you go, anytime you go do anything, you always ask people. You're always like judging. You're always like, who are you? Like, what do you do? There's none of that. But I could see the patterns in which they thought about their lives. 
like, oh, you know, I was working at work and this boss said something about me that was negative feedback and I was really hurt by it and it spiraled into this whole thing. For whatever reason, when I do it, I'd be like, no, this is how my mind works. When I see other people do it, I'd be like, that's f***ing crazy. Yeah. <laughs> but that's how I think. And it was very helpful. And it helped me realize a lot of the patterns of thought I developed were to have protected me in previous times, right? Like, for example, I care a lot about outcome where Will's a little bit more like, oh, like, you know, yeah, bad thing happened, but the parable of the horse is going to end up being fine. I used to care a lot. And that's because, you know, when I was growing up and I did things that didn't go well, I get really punished harshly by my parents. And so I learned to like, you really have to get things right because if they're wrong, that's really bad. Yeah. And that developed this perfectionist syndrome in me that has actually hurt me today because in a startup, you don't know what's going to happen. It's a huge learning for me to like do things that wouldn't do well. And like Will would not blame me. And I'd be like, well, that's weird. Or like Will would do things that wouldn't do well. And I'd have to learn to restrain that impulse and be like, Will, what the f***? <laughs> because like that's this blame assigning mentality I grew up with to try mm. and protect myself. Things go bad. I expect bad things are going to happen. I protect myself by knowing it's going to happen and trying to avoid getting bad things wrong mm. in the first place. But uh, yeah, no, we've done a lot of therapy and I think it's helped us a lot. Yeah, I mean, it was something that I never imagined would ever be so crucial to our business because before yeah. Carrot, when I was running that fund with this friend of mine from Stanford. You didn't do therapy, right? I didn't do therapy. And I had no idea, no vocabulary to think about attachment styles or my feelings at all. And I remember my first therapy session, my therapist asked me, so how do you feel? And I said, well, I think I'm doing okay. <laughs> and he was like, I asked you how, I, how you felt. And I didn't understand. I was like, well, I said, I think I'm doing okay. And he said, how do you feel about that? And I, it took me a whole 10 minutes to even understand one single feeling. And so it was pretty, it was an uphill battle for me. And at the same time, what I've recognized over the past four years of doing this therapy work and working with you has been like, wow, our feelings are such crucial elements of intuition and making the right business decision. Because if I feel off, if I feel scared or concerned or anxious about some next step, why don't I feel excited? Is there something here that I'm not considering or not voicing because I'm afraid mm -hmm. that it might rock the boat? And those are the opportunities that have, I don't know, resulted in the most rich discussion between you and I. And... As co-founders, so much of our efficacy in working together has come back yeah. to like, hey, do I trust you? And there are moments when it's like, actually, that trust was broken. And now we have the vocabulary mm. to talk about that in a way that doesn't hurt feelings, but rather opens up a new opportunity and brings our relationship to a new level. When, when did you feel like your trust was most shaken? Oh, or you? when you were most scared in working with me? Mm. Man. Will's like, oh, so many. No, 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 no. Yeah. Few, like, relatively few. Yeah, but. few, man. Very few. Yeah. I think at time, I mean, this is going to be personal, so maybe we can edit this out, but like you, personal relationships, some of your no, personal I, relationships. I, I, I think we can keep this in. Yeah, like historically, I think um, a while ago, you know, you've had some relationships that yeah. um, I just didn't, I just felt like they went too far in terms of how they yeah. impacted you and how you brought, how, you know, that ended up coming into the workplace because it, you were holding so much and, I could see how personally it was impacting you, but then also professionally it was starting to impact business, it felt like. Yeah. Um, and then I started feeling very scared about like, well, where are these boundaries? And we would try to have these conversations and you would accept and yet not be able to immediately change, which also makes sense. But, you know, during those moments, which were brief, thankfully, but, you know, they were intense. Yeah, it, re it really sucked. I dated someone who... I think sort of blended the personal and professional boundaries and that she started off not in creator circles at all, but through me ended up in a lot of creator circles, which of course affects my work. And when the relationship didn't end up working out, I was really affected by it. And it made it, I felt, I really felt, I really struggled, I think, doing my best work 
yeah. as a co-founder of Carrot. And I, I know that was really scary for Will. And I, yeah. I know, you know, I imagine the story I make because he felt, probably felt really helpless during it, right? Because like, yeah, dude. That, I mean, and I, I think that speaks to the, the nature of our relationship because we start off as friends. And right. as friends, it's very easy. Everything's personal, right? There's no professional. And like, you know, say your friend's going through a bad relationship, it's in some ways easier to just be like, damn, that really sucks, yeah. right? But when you're co-founders, a lot of that becomes professional as well because then you have to think about like, damn, that really sucks, but also like, how does this affect my work with you and how does this affect my company, our company, Carrot? Right. And now like, I have to think about, like I'm concerned for you as a friend, but I can't just be that friend. I have to, just have to be like, well, from a business decision POV, like, are you making the right decisions? Right. Which really mm-hmm. changes things. Yeah. And I, I've, I've expressed with Will, I think one of the times in our relationship I felt most hurt was I remember we, were, we yeah. came out of a co-founder coaching therapy session. Will was like, hey man, I don't know if I feel like friends anymore. Right. Because for Will, friendship meant a lot of like, hey, you just get dinners with each other and you just shoot the shit and you don't talk about work. Right. right. And like we haven't done that much. Frankly, actually yesterday we had like a little dinner date. Will and I walked down to Chipotle. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and we like actively try to talk about not work. Yeah, just it's, personal. Yeah, personal. but we had, we had to set it up because it, it was hard. Yeah. And I remember feeling really shaken by that because I, I considered you my like my closest friend. And yeah. now I understand it more. We have to have more boundaries, right? The same way when I was going through this really bad relationship, it really affected you, not only personally, but also professionally, yeah. right? Now I'm realizing more, we do have different personal lives. Yeah. And you know, I'm in a relationship now that it's early and so far I think it's going really well and it's going yeah. great. And I've been careful to actually shield a lot more of that from you. I'm sure you've noticed. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Relative to the past. Because it's not like, oh, we're just friends and we can just talk about it. It's like, well, there's business implications as coworkers as well. Yeah, and it's just a balance. I mean, I also yeah. mentioned this before where it's like, yeah, maybe we're not like, I don't see this as per se friends. Yeah. But more maybe as brothers or siblings almost. Yeah. Or like that kind of closeness where I don't consider my, my sister's a great <laughs> friend, but she's my sister first. And yeah. I wonder if there's another kind of category of like, yeah, we're co-founders, which has this depth of like deep, deep relationship that is both uh, good and bad at times or can feel very intense in these both positive yeah. and negative directions. I, you know, I felt sad. I still feel sad. It's like, well, yeah. I don't know if we're friends the same way. Right. I do like we're co-founders. I actually think that's a really nice, elegant way of saying it. It's yeah. like, we are co-founders. And I think <laughs> anyone who has co-founded or like worked in business with someone who's a friend gets that new dynamic. Right. You are close, but it's not quite friendship. It's right. weird. It's weird. Yeah. It's just, yeah. I mean, friends, it's like hunky dory a lot of times and you might have like a little bit of friend drama. Also like when you're upset with a friend, you can just take space. Right. But you can't when you work together. Yeah. Not when we're trying to every day build something that's meaningful. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I don't know. It's, in many ways, though, I feel like our relationship is far more meaningful because when I was yeah, when I felt strong. that we were the best friends, at least in my recollection, in terms of just like, oh, like Eric's a great friend, you know, that was actually before we had started working yeah, together. Before we started working together, because I had no idea yeah. about who you actually yeah, were fully. Actually, you, yeah, you got to know a person a lot more when you work. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I actually remember one of the first places where you, I think you understood me a little bit more. So we were recording our pitch for Y Combinator. Which editors like prompt me? I'll send it to you. Actually, we we put the link and people can see our Y Combinator pitch from like four years ago. By the way, we filmed it in the bathroom of an ex. Yeah, acoustics were pretty good because the acoustics were fantastic. But so the story. This is one of the first things where we worked together and realized we were a little bit different. So the reason why we filmed it in a bathroom of an ex was because we were initially going to film it just like at our place. 
and obviously I had roommates who yeah. are lovely, and if you're watching this, we love you. And they were like, you know, they were working there, as is right. their right to do as roommates. And for me, when I do creative work, which I've over the years realized I actually really like. This goes back to some of my earlier points. I always had this creative side of myself. I, li I like doing this stuff, right? But I, I need it to be like quiet. I need there to be like nobody around. I need to be like completely silent. Even when we work here at the Carrot offices, Will actually works in this area. This little podcast area is part of a broader workspace where like Will is the laptop, he has a monitor, he has his keyboard and everyone else is here and they all work together. I work in a separate room <laughs> where the blinds are drawn. It's almost completely dark. It's as dark as it could be possibly be without literal blackout curtains. Right. And P.S. I've actually ordered blackout curtains. I just never like had the energy to like set them up. But it, like it's dark. I only turn the lights on when I have Zoom calls. It is quiet. It is separate. And so we were trying to film this Y Combinator pitch, and I just I had a lot of really strong feelings on how we did this, mm -hmm. and I just could not focus and do it in a background where other people were working around me. And so this was literally like 10 p.m. at night. And like the pitch was like already late because we didn't even apply for Y Combinator on time. It was because of someone I got to know through a networking event, which is something I'm pretty good at. Yeah. You know, I built a lot of these relationships that ended up being helpful. And we were able to apply late, but we need we had like two hours to record this. And we just could not find a place because why didn't we go to your place? I think your acoustics were bad. I also had roommates. You also had roommates. <laughs> that was right. And so I had more. Oh no, I had the same number of roommates that you did. You had roommates too. Also, I don't think the acoustics were good at your place either. Probably not. So I was dating this girl at the time, and she was. I'm actually very grateful to her for this, honestly. And she was out of town. Yeah. And I was just telling her what's going on. She's like, just use my place. Yeah. And I don't know if you remember, we literally went to her apartment building and she yeah. ensured that the concierge gave us her keys at the front. So we went up, she wasn't even home, and we went to her bathroom yeah. and we just filmed it there. And you can't even tell it's about the acoustics were mwah. I don't know. I feel like you could probably, well, you probably tell I think there was like a towel rack right behind us. I might be wrong, but... And this is a fun fact. We tried filming it like not in the bathroom, but yeah. she... She was a very successful founder. She did very well for herself. So her place was like really nice. It was nicer than both of our places. Yeah. And so we like tried to film in her living room, but it was such a nice place. Yeah. We were just like... The optics are not good. The optics are not good. <laughs> it's like, why are these guys trying to like apply for startup funding when they're clearly like living in a penthouse and don't yeah. need us? And to be clear, we, we were not in that place financially. Like this was her oh, place. No. Yeah. This was not our place. So we were just like... This is not representative of who we actually are. We can't film this like luxurious skyline background. Yeah. I think that's another reason why we did it in the bathroom. Yeah. Yeah. Optics. Optics in all senses and acoustics. Optics and acoustics. Optics and acoustics. Yeah. But um, I remember this is one of the first times where you realized because you were just like, wait, Eric, what the f? Like, you can't just like record this video here with everyone else walking around yeah, in the I background. Remember I use this word carefully, like obsessive almost about yes, like no, every I'm, single thing. I'm, I just couldn't yeah, imagine. That's, that's the only thing Will and I have realized. For me, I'm either obsessively on or I'm like, I mean, how do you want to describe it? I don't know. Like on another planet, like just completely disengaged. It's, uh, yeah, yeah, you're just not even in the same Yeah, space. that sounds about right. Which again, my big belief is we don't have strengths and weaknesses. We just have pronounced tendencies of ourselves. Right. 
And in some situations, those tendencies are amazingly beneficial. In some situations, the tendencies are harmful. I think the secret of life, well, and I don't quite agree on this. This is my philosophy more than Will's, is trying to find situations where you get to just demonstrate how your tendencies come off extremely helpful. Mm. And so one of those tendencies, as Will said, when I get obsessively focused about things, I'm obsessively focused. And when I'm not, I don't really even know what's going on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's fair. I, th- I mean, one of our team... He commented that uh, Eric's like a oh, black hole. Oh, he commented the black hole. So it's like... <laughs> or sometimes I come to him and I'm like, this super matters, I needed to do this, and he yeah. does it. And then when my focus just to something else, it's like, what happened? Yeah, it's just not there. Yeah. Kind of nothing and sometimes comes back out. that obsessive focus is needed. Yeah. Especially in the early days of the company, we worked with right. a lot of really big creators. We needed to make sure we did a yeah. good job with them. And yeah, so like when it comes to filming content, I'm actually pretty obsessive. Yeah, like people don't know, but even before recording this podcast, we were recording a number of different intros and segments and takes that I had very firm beliefs on how to do. And Will was kind of just sitting there vibing. He's kind of like, "All right, like, yeah. can I can I go? Like, can I? Like, do I smile? Like, what what do I do? How does this work? Yeah, yeah, I, I care, I care. Yeah, I mean, it comes yeah. back, yeah, dude. I mean, some of these tendencies, I think you're right. They're not good or bad. Yeah, they're it comes just back to the man and the horse. Like, it's really just, they exist. <sighs> well, well now, now I'm trying to think, what's what's that thing for you? Like, what's the tendency about yourself I've really learned? I think one I've noticed, which also relates to what we're doing now, Will doesn't really talk about himself as much. No. He doesn't necessarily like to be featured, but he also wants to feel represented. Yeah, It's like this weird balance where... Like, Will doesn't know if he wants to spend as much time figuring out content, but yeah. he wants to ensure that you, the viewers, know we are co-CEO and we are equal. Yes, for sure. Right. Which then you have to combine that with, which makes sense, you have to combine that with also Will's previous statement that he thinks the job of a CEO in some ways is to work yourself out of a job and not be present. Mm-hmm. And so there's sort of this weird dynamic when I work with Will where it's like he like wants to be there, but also doesn't want to be trying to be there. Mm. I think the biggest frustration point I had was, so we were asked to give this talk at this big tech conference called Collision a couple years ago. It's like a pretty big deal. And we're asked to give a keynote. And I was super excited. I love doing this. I was like, oh, well, I can't wait to do this keynote. And I really want to craft the story in a certain way. And Will's like, well, I want to do this keynote too. Because we're co-founders, we're co-CEOs. And I'm like, you know what? Sure. Well, I think at the time it was, I thought it was through a connect that I had. And so I was like, yeah, let's we'll do it together. Yes, I actually think it was also through connection. I also right. think so it was, was like, through Will's connection. Then. It was also through Will's connection. Yeah. And I think there's a part of you that's like, well, I, which I get, we're co-founders. We should yeah. do this together, which I was like, makes sense. Right. In a perfect world, I care a lot about crafting these stories and areas. I love doing it myself, but I'm like, this makes sense. And what happened was Collision was the same time as VidCon, mm. which is more on my side in terms of where I spend a lot of my time. So I was like, well, I can't go to Collision now because I have to go to VidCon, but Will, you should still go to Collision. And I remember Will, you were like, well, if it's not with you, you know, like, it's really important if you're going to do it. Of course, I want to do this with you and be represented. But if you're not doing it, like, I don't really want to do this. Like, it's actually a lot of work to yeah. travel over to, I was like, Canada or something and, like, prepare this whole keynote and speech. Right. I think the thing yeah. for me was actually that you had said, hey, you're going to take the lead on figuring this out. Yeah. And then I think a week before, it was like, actually, I haven't figured I, it out. And I'm also not going to go. So, yeah. real one, just figure it out. Yes. And I was like, okay, I'm not going to spend a week trying to just figure this out last minute. I have more things that I can do. And for me, I do, and maybe this is rationalization, but I do come back to always like, what's the most important thing for me, for the business? Like, how do I make sure that we do that? And I only want to spend my time doing the most important thing. 
And so oftentimes that's rarely, uh, if it's stuff like uh, the content stuff, for instance, I think you're very good at doing that. And I come back to like, I do I want to do it? At times I want to do it. At times I don't want to do it. I don't feel very strongly on it. There are areas where I'm like, oh, I do want to make sure we're equally represented right. because that's a key part of the story. But it, I think, for instance, like in the podcast in general, I was like, at first I was initially thinking, yeah, we do a podcast together. Oh, we actually went through this. It was actually a big yeah. discussion where we'll want to ensure we interviewed guests together. Right. And my pushback was, I wanted to do it myself, not because I don't think you do a good job or because I don't want to do things with you, but because this is something I really want to create and feel that freedom. And I felt like I need to do it myself. And you right. actually were down to let me do this. Right. Yeah. Because I think I, initially it was like, hey, we should do the podcast. And I felt like I was driving. Oh, that. yeah. Actually, in some ways, Will was the pushing force behind doing the podcast right. in the first place. And then, yeah. it, so then there was another shifting, right? And so yeah. I think for me, it just comes back down to like the PR appearances and stuff. I have this like weird twisted relationship with because it feels good at times to be seen and to be validated. But then it rarely feels like the most important thing in my head. And uh, that's not always true. Sometimes it is actually very important. It's crucial for recruiting. It can be very, very helpful for um, user acquisition and growth. But it never feels like that one thing is going to change anything. And it's a lot of work. Right. Like, honestly, we're, going out there in front of a crowd, I don't love it. Whereas for me, I actually place a lot of importance on networking and relationships right. and image to a lot of her early clients I carry are all through the network of relationships we've cultivated. Sure, yeah. I mentioned in the beginning segment of this podcast, like, yeah, we work with Graham Stephan and Alex Botez and Ludwig and Sam Colder and Nick DiGiovanni. Yeah. And it's all from this nature of the work that I really enjoy. And I've realized Will and I consider that work differently. Right. And in some ways, that's the complementary nature of what we do. No one really knows how important or not important that type of stuff is. But no. Will and I have just agreed the work we do is equally important right. because we couldn't have done it without each other. Right. I know for a fact that I could not be doing care without Will. Right. Like and this. I know Will believes that in terms of the work I do too. But that doesn't mean we still don't sometimes disagree over, okay, cool, like understanding that overall oh, yeah. gestalt, like how do you value the importance of going out to like this convention and meeting with this person and building this relationship? I historically have placed more importance on that mm -hmm. in certain contexts than Will has. But who's to say whether it's ultimately more beneficial or not? I think we've just landed that they're both important. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. To the collision thing, I think for me, Will's right on that for me, like I hadn't like prepared for it or hadn't done the work and was like, oh, you're going to do the work. For me, the, the disconnect and why we're different, for me, the work, this type of work is fun and easy. Mm -hmm. Like I, some of you have seen the Asian Hustle Network talk I gave. I came up with that like day of the night before. It mm -hmm. is work. But I like it. And I think for Will, that's the difference where you don't enjoy. Yeah, I don't enjoy that. Like, to yeah. me, like going out and then talking to a group of people is not, certainly not my top 10 things that I want to be or, doing. Or, and I guess I'm feeling slightly defensive because it's less yeah. even the people part, which I do care about. It's just the act of crafting that message, that story. Sure. Or maybe you do like that part. I do love storytelling. I do love actually. storytelling. Oh, okay. do love storytelling. And that's mm. something that I remember in college I did a lot with friends. It was just like, trying to pitch random ideas to each other. So how do you, well, see, it's an interesting point. How do you fulfill that need today then? I suppose, because I, you spend- Recruiting, bro. So you do a lot of storytelling when recruiting. I'm, when I'm talking with other mm. potential hires, a lot of this is just storytelling. See, there's an interesting point you and I have both heard a lot that the job of a founder really ultimates three things. You want to say them? Yeah, I mean, it's vision, people, money. Yeah, 
make sure number one, people know what they're doing, right. make sure that you have the right people and make sure you have the money and resources to fund it where money can be a mix of profitability, but also your fundraising. Right. And in some ways we'll always have found ways to cover them. For example, you just talked about recruiting. Will does a lot more recruiting work than I do. Right. I think that right squarely, yeah. squarely falls into the people side. Right. I suppose, mm, my work right now, and I mean, historically, we've always tag-teamed on fundraising, mm-hmm. right? On mission, I guess we're tag-teaming on that, too. So I guess you're doing a little bit more for the people side. Although one could also say I'm doing a lot on the mission side, too, because I'm the one who's out there with creators more, too. Yeah. I think, and we talked about this as well, like, what is strategy? What is vision? Right? Yeah. I think it's a combination. It's always like, we can always say, let's do this thing. Yeah. Or this is what we need to get to. How much of that is the end of strategy or vision and how much of that is actually the beginning of building um, and, and figuring out how to put pen to paper? Because I think at times it's like finding that, that middle ground between the, okay, we want to get here in 10 years right. versus like the reality of today, how do we do it? You know, what do we do? What's, uh, what's something, we talked a bit about times where we felt frustrated or faith was shaken. What's times where you felt... Either specific times we fell off appreciation or just traits and attributes you feel off appreciation for. Yeah, I think for you, Eric, I think a lot of this comes back to the amount of time you spend with creators is, is honestly, it's even exhausting for me to think about. Mm. I mean, I love creators. I love our yeah, users. I honestly admire them. They're entertaining, inspiring, educational, like all this stuff. And at the same time, I'm, a, I'm an introvert. Mm. And so there's only so much battery that I can have for those like, kind of conversations um, and I find that I actually like hanging out with our team and making sure that, okay, are we building the right stuff? Mm. And so it feels really nice to have that balance. And I, I don't know, deep trust where you are actually representing the company fairly and well yeah. and thinking about how do we kind of continue pushing this forward. Thanks. I like that. And yeah, I, because again, it comes down to this context, you know, I'm not doing it because I feel like I have to. I do it because for me, that's a huge reason why I'm doing Carrot in the first place. Yeah. Genuinely, most of my friends are creators these days or founders. Yeah. And that's just because I think there's that little bit of that mental unlock you have to go through to want to do your own thing that both creators and founders would go through. And I, like I mentioned before, I think I love working with creators because I'm like, here are people who figured out the true sense of just how to live your life and support themselves by sharing it with others. I find that very beautiful, right? I think the classic criticism against creators is like, well, you know, like I'm building tables out here, right? I keep, keep going back to tables. Like you're just like making TikToks. And it's like, I'm like, yeah, sure. But sure, maybe you need tables to live. Well, questionable, but probably. You need tables to like survive in the modern world or whatever. But to even want to, to live, <laughs> that's where content comes in. That's where you allude to this, right? You, you watch content, right? That's how you're educated. You're inspired. You're entertained. You're relaxed. And I see like TikTok and Instagram, YouTube is just the modern equivalent of like once upon a time, it was television, then radio waves, then like the printing press, then like just sitting around the fire and telling stories, right? It's like this very human thing of how we connect with each other. I think uh, one thing I always appreciate about you, well, first of all, like there's a mirror side to what you said is, yeah, you spend a lot of time with the team. And I like that. You spend a lot of time caring about the people we work with. Obviously I do too. But right, the same way I spend more time with creators, you spend more time with the team. And what I always appreciate is the long, far reaching view you've always had around what we're doing mm. where I think from the very beginning when Will and I were starting Carrot, Will was already thinking about how does this become a billion dollar company? Like earnestly, the two of us just sitting in our basement 
And I've always been thinking, and this, this is a capability of mine that's sometimes also become a strength. I'm usually thinking about the immediate term. What right. do we need to do? Right. Which many times, in many cases, is also very, very helpful. Yeah. And I, I remember Will just in that bedroom, or sorry, not that bedroom, that living room downstairs, and Paul also just being like, no, like, how does this become a billion-dollar business? Like, what's the pathway to series A, B, C, D, and so on? Mm. It's very helpful because we actually had a funding offer very early on, before right. we even really knew what we were doing. It's like 100K at a very low valuation, like $3 million. And for those of you listening, you're probably like, how could anything you build be worth $3 million when you haven't even done it yet? The way you think about valuation is just the percentage probability an investor thinks you're going to hit a billion dollar outcome. So if you get a valuation of three million, three million divided by a billion, basically an investor thinks you have what, like a 0.3% chance of being a billion dollar company right. for context. And I remember I was like, let's just take it, let's just go. And you very correctly were like, if you want to build this type of company, Carrot, like there are other type of companies we could have built, but if you want to build like a financial technology company, 100K is not a lot. And you're gonna you're gonna run out of money really quickly in a year, and you're not gonna have that much to show for it, and you're just gonna be screwed. If you're gonna raise for something like this and be big and ambitious, you have to raise more from the start. And you were absolutely right. That was you thinking through from the beginning. How do I get to this billion dollar company? There are decisions we should make now that help us get there. Yeah, yeah, and I think you're yeah. right. It's absolutely this balance because at times I've also been bitten in the where I was so focused on like. The long term, and then you would always have this kind of well, what, what's balancing. An, what's an example? The uh, balancing I aspect. I, I, I just remember the one thing you said at the time, and I think this was when we were trying to launch the card product, and it was just like, let's just get the card out there. And I was like, oh, we could make this a little bit better. And you were like, dude, we're like sharks. You know, like sharks have gills. You need to swim in order to actually have oxygen move past those gills. If you, the sharks don't keep, when sharks stop swimming, they die. They die. Yeah. And it's like startups are no different. I was like, honestly. Nice I, I do remember this. So for Inconis, when we went through Y Combinator, like our vision has always been, always been to help creators with money and finances. But, yeah. you know, as you know, our first product was the business credit card. It wasn't that initially. In the early days, it's just business capital. It's yeah. actually kind of similar to like Spotter and Jelly Smack are doing. Right. It's kind of like you need like $500,000 as a creator to like expand your channel or yeah. do some really big thing. Like Smosh, for example, just bought back their channel. They brought in a financing partner to help cover that. And we're like, as a test, we're going to go out and like raise money and just give it to creators to like right. launch their merchandise, expand their studios. And it worked. We actually financed merchandise for really big creators like Jaden Animations and PewDiePie. Yeah. They don't know we did it though because we were always working indirectly through a partner. Right. And middleman. Middleman. And we realized that's not good because we think we got to have that direct relationship with the creator. When we try to go directly to creators, we were never able to like explain what we were doing that well. Like as a test during 2020, right, during the pandemic, there literally was stimulus money the government offered called PPP, where the government offered these like loans that'd be forgiven to help tide over your business and cover payroll. So we literally go to YouTubers and be like, I can help get you thousands of dollars in PPP money and it's going to be free to sign here. And they'd be like, no, f*** off, you scammer. There's yeah. no free lunch here. We don't want to do this. And so we were in the middle of Y Combinator and we're like, oh my gosh, I don't think this is the right business model. We need to find a different product. We need to find something that I can explain to a creator immediately that they can share with themselves. And that's where we landed the business credit card because we talked with creators like Alex Botez who were literally rejected multiple times because they didn't have good business credit history or banks didn't understand what they were doing. And in setting this up, I pivoted almost in the span of a day. I like talked to a couple people, remember? And I was like, we should do this. And I can get this set up with Stripe in like a week. And you're like, no, it's going to take too long. And what's going to happen? And let's talk this through more with our investor partner at the time, Aaron Harris. And eventually we got there. And I am proud that we were able to move fast in part because of what I pushed. But at the same time, this is the complementary nature of what we did. There's a mirror side to that as well. Yeah. 
we recently made a change to the business credit card where now it builds personal credit, which is so important because as a creator, you want to ensure not just you can get better treatment and limits with us, but with every other bank in the future. You want to get a mortgage. You got to get a bank to understand what you do. And they can't do that if your credit history isn't better. And we shipped out a change recently where now our carrot business cards also build personal credit history. Right. And that transition was so painful because we had to switch banking partners and reissue these cards and go to our creators, go to people like Ludwig and say, we need to reissue your cards, send them back. They're not going to work when I send you new cards. And it's absolutely the right decision to do. And I don't know if I would have made that decision because there's a lot of short-term pain involved there. And I tend to be focused on the near term. But you were thinking through the longer term, this is the right thing we need to do for creators and we need to do this now. And that's the nature of our partnership. I might not have initiated that, but when you did, I agreed with it. Right. And it was just like, I mean, it constantly goes through these like different, yeah. we lean on each other's strengths and it just comes back to the differences that I've more and more kind of come to appreciate. Yeah. Where perhaps the first year of our working together was quite rocky, honestly, in my recollection, mm. where it was fun. And we had a lot of arguments huh. around. I actually don't remember them as much. But oh, I really? You. Okay. <laughs> what did we argue the most over? I think we argued a lot over just like, just like little things like, did you do this? Oh, you didn't do it? Why did you do it? And it would come huh. back and forth quite Gosh, a bit. I totally don't remember this. Damn. I remember one time we had a bad Do you remember? Argument. What was it? I, I don't remember exactly what it was over. It was, I just remember I said, hey, Eric, you dropped the ball. And uh, that created this like, oh yeah, yeah, I remember. Yeah. yeah. So one of the biggest lessons for me to learn was how to take responsibility. So I grew up again with parents who like, you do something wrong or something goes off, like you get blamed super hard and you feel like a piece of because all the love you receive is conditional on performance. So if you don't perform well, you don't feel loved. So I was really scared. always like, you did something that doesn't get, go well, you get punished for it. And so I had a lot of issues especially early on taking responsibility. Like I do something, it doesn't go well. Like, well, that was on you, Eric. And I like freaked the fuck out because it's like, oh my God, like it feels like my parents being angry at me. Yeah. You actually rouse better at this. Like say you do something, it doesn't go well. You rouse better. Like, eh, whatever. The horse, yeah. the horse yeah, story. Exactly. It might turn out better in the long term. And what really helped me was, I'm still sensitive around it, but what helped me a lot was shifting this concept from blame to responsibility. For me, that was a helpful framing. Say I do something and it doesn't go well. I still don't love the framing of it's my fault because in my head, not saying everyone agrees with this, but in my head, fault involves an implication around intent. It's like, well, I didn't intend for this to fail. I didn't have bad intentions. It still did. Yeah. But I really grew to appreciate the concept of responsibility. Right. I did this thing. It didn't work. I am responsible for this. Right. Sure, maybe it's not my fault, but I am responsible. I'm responsible for this. I'm responsible for fixing it or ensuring it doesn't happen again in the future. But it took me a long time. In the early days when I didn't do something, Will, you know, we hadn't been through this discussion. Will basically be like, it's your fault. Like you dropped the ball. And yeah, I'd I would like, say you dropped the ball. You dropped yeah. the ball. And I'd like, like and eventually we landed on, okay, Eric, it's helpful to internalize this concept of responsibility and Will understanding more where Eric's been through in his past traumas, yeah. adopting that language more as well. Right. I'm trying right. to think. Early on, yeah, actually, that was helpful. I mean, even also us living together at the time, there was a lot of like the messiness that I would complain about and be uh, annoyed about. And so I remember just like these little oh, things. Oh, or I, I wake up later than you. Oh, that too. I yeah, like for context, oh, yeah. like I go to bed later than Will does, to be clear. But I also wake up later than Will, and Will had this big conception in his head, like not just around waking up, but cleanliness, like from your parents, like cleanliness is godliness. Yeah. Like a good human being wakes up early, is super clean. 
Yeah. And I think for you, it's a lot I of... I still hold that to be true. You, you know, you do. And I think... And I'm more like, do whatever you... Whatever, whatever right? Yeah. And I, I think it was a big thing for you to be like, okay, maybe we'll... Maybe Eric, like, is messier and wakes up later, but it's not like a piece of <laughs> Yeah, which took... That honestly took me probably six to 12 months to get like, there, There's a lot of like... A lot of therapy A sessions. lot of like moral judgment for, yes. from you. Which is weird because, you know, for a person who's like, oh, I don't really believe in moral good or bad. Like, I did have these kind of character yeah. judgments almost about like, yeah. well, you should just do this. Yeah, and yeah. it was very interesting. So I mean, that took some time. And to be clear, like you know, in living together, we we go on and off. Sometimes we live together, sometimes right. we don't. I've actually been much better about the cleanliness. Yes, thing. yes. To be clear, yeah, yeah. like viewers. But, yeah, yeah. But for <laughs> a long, a yeah, for a long time, there's a there's a big like moral pronouncement. Like, dude, yeah. like I How can't. How could you not? Yeah, I can't help this? but think you just like suck as a human. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A yeah. little bit. I definitely felt that a couple of years ago. Yeah. So. So a, a couple a couple last questions. I I think the first one is um. You know, we've been doing this now for four years, yeah. right? Which is kind of insane. And I think we're just over four years. We started in July. Well, I actually remember the first check we raised was CRV. Yes. Put in $500,000. And I remember the pitch meeting was on my birthday, July 22nd. Oh. And I remember that because we came in, this is before COVID. This was uh, 2019. because so we came in and we pitched to them. Yeah. And I told them it was my birthday. And so we were joking. Like, oh, I hope this goes well. Right? And I remember... <laughs> It was like very good vibes. And I was like, this is a great birthday present because we landed a 500K check <laughs> yeah. from a great investor that we are still very fond of. Sar, if you're watching this from CRV or Justine or Olivia, we've truly loved working with you over the years. So at this point, four years. And we're excited to continue working together. I, so for me, it's very easy. And it's, it's, it's uh, July. It's the middle of July right now. It's almost no, but four years. We incorporate July 1 because you're, we got actually, a YC check before that. Ah, Y Combinator was our first check. Yeah. So actually before CRV was YC. Man, I wish we could have taken that call together. I think yeah. you were, I don't remember why we couldn't, yeah. but Aaron Harris, our, why a comedy partner, he called me. Yeah. I think it was because we had been together the whole day and he called at like 1130 at night and yeah. we just didn't happen to be together. Yeah. And I just took it. But I remember he was like, the way he described, the way he framed it wasn't you're accepting to Y Combinator. Yeah. What he said was, we want to invest in you which I think is a very powerful distinction to say. Hmm. Yeah. But yeah, it's, you're right. It's actually been a little bit over four years. Yeah. And we're, we're going to keep doing this for at least a while longer, hopefully even longer. But it's like the longest we've done anything. Yeah. It's kind of crazy, man. Yeah. No, it's, I mean, it's been a journey for sure. It's been so many ups and downs. <sighs> I, yeah. <laughs> and for those of you watching, now you got to hear a little bit more of the story. I, I'll, let's end this on a final question. When, when during your conversation today did you feel most connected to me? Mm, I, re I remember a moment when I felt connected. I just remember what you were talking about. <laughs> I just okay. remember looking. It was when your voice was going a little bit huskier because uh, it was a. Um, oh, damn, that husky voice. Yeah, husky voice. Got to figure out how to and replicate just, that. I'll think about. Maybe it's when you were talking about like <laughs> the Series B, how you were balling is really hard. Oh, yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's right. We'll have to go back, but I think you were just definitely, it was hard. Yeah, like, it was, it was and oh God. I just felt that deep connection. Oh, like, those was, moments were some of the worst, scariest moments really that we shared. Because it was at a point in our company when we had built enough that like in the early days, say the yeah. company fails, like nobody gives a shit. Like yeah. this is you and me, like nobody knows what we're doing. We didn't even have that many clients. Right. I think seriously, it was a point where we'd build up significant, sufficiently enough traction yeah. to work. We had we're users, like, we had a whole team. We yeah, had like plus, that plus we, we thought we had a real shot at this. So it's like to fail then, or rather even to fail now, it's just like, except at that point, it was literally like either we will raise or we won't. It's just like, oh, holy f 
man. Yeah, so I just think I felt connected to that kind of recognition of like, yeah, that was hard. Yeah, that was, that was you know? scary as f I remember when we, we, as we mentioned, we, the funny thing is like we actually started to get offers. Like the way fundraising works is you don't get offers for a while and then they all start to come in. Yep. So we suddenly started to get interest all at the same time. And we actually ended up going in with our existing investors because we, right. we like them a lot over right. other, other interest. I remember we, we got it. And I remember, do you remember we literally went and watched um, Eternals, the Marvel yeah. movie? Yeah, yeah. We literally just went and it was just like, we're like, oh my God, I think we're going to, we have interest, we have offers. Let's just like go and chill for a night. We went and watched Eternals. We went and watched a movie yeah. at uh, the downtown AMC. And it's hilarious because the movie was so bad. Yeah, it was laughably bad. I actually laughed out loud, which is great. It was like the first time I laughed in probably <laughs> I think weeks you fell asleep during half of it. And I also fell asleep. It was a good, it was I it was remember the end nice. though when that main character guy just like flew into the sun and we had a good laugh. That was that. hilarious. Yeah, Will has this thing. So Will is not into DC and Marvel yeah. as much as I am. I, I'm still going to give you We went and watched Spider-Man. Um, oh, yeah. God, what was it? Away, uh, Far From Home, Away From Home. Yeah. No home Way Home. home. No yeah. Way Home. Okay. Yeah. Because the first Spider-Man was Homecoming. The second one was Away From Home or Far From Home. The third one was No Way Home. And you know, Spider-Man, spoiler, sorry if you haven't seen it, but at this point it's on you. Right, all his previous villains from other dimensions come in. Like Green Goblin is there, and I remember Will's like awake during most of the movie. He's during the he's awake during the part of the movie where like Green Goblin comes in and like Peter's like building a relationship and they're like friendly with him again. Yeah. And then, as you might recall, like Green Goblin goes f crazy and like murders like Peter Parker's aunt, yeah. Aunt May, and like tries to murder everyone. And they fight at that. And so like Will falls asleep during this whole middle portion where Green Goblin turns evil, <laughs> and Will also. Bless your heart. Doesn't know that much about Marvel or Spider Man. So he, <laughs> he doesn't know the lore the same way I do. So Will's like awake when he's like buddy buddy with Green Goblin, not really knowing who Green Goblin is. Yeah. Falls asleep, wakes up to like Spider Man and Green Goblin fighting themselves to the death, and he's just like, "Well, everyone's cheering." And yeah, I'm like, what's yeah. going and on? And you wake up and you're just like, "I thought they were friends. Like, <laughs> why, why are they fighting?" And I'm like, "Oh, oh no, <laughs> oh no." Yeah. How about you? When, when did you feel most connected? I think it's all appreciate we got to do this in the first place. We haven't had a, a lot, a long conversation like this for a while. Yeah, that's true. just appreciation. You know, I think it's actually in the beginning where I was shooting the different takes for the intros, and you're kind of like, "Can we just get this over with?" But you're kind of like, "It's okay. I'll let Eric do his thing." Yeah, and I appreciated that very much. I'm like, "Hey, I do need to do my thing. I do need to go through this oh. to get in the vibe, to get ready to do the pod." And yeah. you're, you're trusting me. We're doing it. It's it's chill. It's good. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, yeah. I think that comes back to like the past four years being an experience and understanding each other. And like, yeah. there are certain things that really matter to you. Like yeah, the obsessive pieces of where the cameras are and everything and the mic uh, quality. Your camera angle is so much better. The lighting, Great. the angle. Perfect. Yours, I kept moving it because every time you, you move your arm. <laughs> oh, sorry. I, I mean, it's fine. I knew this is just the camera. I, I gave, back to the I'm obsessive being, quality. I'm being, <laughs> I'm being honest, I gave you the better. You wanted it, but I'm giving you the better from a lighting and angle perspective. But oh. It's okay. Thank you, Eric. That means a lot. All right. Everybody, thank you so much for watching. This is my co-founder, Will Kim, my co-CEO. We're doing it. Raised $70 million. We are trying our hardest to make this work. And thank you so much for watching and for supporting. Thank you all. It's fine. It was really